Badlands. Run into Badlands. Explain those Badlands. That's a hell of a name. Number us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's about keeping those ants in line. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge has marked upward certain mankind. The sheeple aren't going anywhere. They don't want this sentimentality. They don't want freedom or empowerment. They want to be controlled. They crave the comfort of certainty. Barricaded the world with hate, as goose stepped us into misery and bloodshed. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much, feel too little. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. Don't give yourselves to brutes, men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, tire you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men, with machine minds and machine hearts. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. trying to free your mind, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. You have to let it all go. Fear, doubt, and disbelief. Free your mind. Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome. This is Defected, episode number 59. That intro just reminded me that you sent a text to me yesterday that Paolo Costa oh, yeah. walked out to some of the theme music that's in our show. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, that's pretty cool. That must have been kind of surreal for you. Well, it was funny that. because I, I was letting the dog out and then I walked in. So I was watching the pay-per-view and um, and Mrs. Bright was like, that's the that's the defected theme song. And I look at the TV and I'm like, oh, yeah. So, yeah, last <laughs> night on the UFC pay-per-view, the co-main event, Brazilian walked out to the uh, I assume he was doing that as a direct tribute to defected. Of course. Course. Of course. I mean, it's not just a cool theme song that, you know, anybody. I totally like. didn't spend 15 minutes trolling his social media feeds looking to see if he had ever liked or shared our show. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, he was not successful in the fight, but he did land a beautiful it was a good fight. wheel kick. Yes. It's which a good was fight. impressive because uh, yes. he is not the karateka. In that fight, Robert Whitaker is actually the karate dude, and the Brazilian brawler hits him with a wheel kick. So yeah. he did a little bit of a reverse psychology there. He didn't. He didn't think uh, Robert didn't think that Costa would come in there with some spinach shit as Nate. And Diaz Whitaker ate it. I mean, he ate it and just and kept going. It was impressive. It, the yeah, kick was it itself was impressive. was impressive, and then him eating it was impressive. Yeah. So it was a good fight. I don't know I've if you're aware because I I know you're you know you used to follow the UFC, but one of the greatest quotes of all time emanates from nick diaz when he fought carlos condit carlos yes. condit hit him with a spinning back fist in like the fourth round and diaz threw up his hands and said are we doing spinning shit now <laughs> it was one of the greatest <laughs> moments in mma like only a diaz could be hit and be losing a fight and somehow make the winner of the fight feel like a bitch for hitting them <laughs> with a technique that they deem to be untoward. It was like the most Diaz thing ever. Oh, that makes me want to watch that fight again. I'd forgotten about it. <laughs> Carlos is just like, I mean, yeah, man, like I hit you with a bunch of stuff. Why are you focusing on that one? <laughs> All right, folks, sorry to derail us into fighting for a moment, but there was a good segue there for it. So I decided to do it. Um, uh, welcome everyone. This is Defected, and tonight we're going to talk about Fannie Willis uh, blowing up in Georgia. Um, we're going to talk about Russian nukes in space, and also Putin totally assassinating somebody he's had in prison for three plus years. Um, yeah, we're going to talk at the peak of a news cycle revolving yes. around him, which makes perfect sense. Yes, uh, and we're going to talk about um, siloed journos and also siloed news stories that come back around and suddenly become new news, even though they're old. Uh, our, our good friend Chris Paul has called them reruns, which I think is very apt. And in that vein, we're going to talk about how we think that reruns are necessary. And there's an ba interesting balancing act that we all have to do, where we have to balance the need for them to cut those stories to come back around and have empathy for the audience who's hearing them for the first time against our frustrations with people one being apathetic and ignorant in the first place and two the journos who reproduce those stories and act like they're new and put breaking exclusive emoji whatever on their post about them um and then we're going to talk about justice and bb called it invisible justice that might be apt because a lot of justice that seems to be delivered and has been delivered over the past several years it, it's like it's invisible to a huge section of the country and of the community. And we had an example of that this past week with um, McGonagall. And uh, it led me down a path of thinking. Uh, I think I have a, a pretty defected view on it. And uh, so we're gonna kick that ball around. And um, those are our main topics for tonight. Before we get to them, 
We have a couple ads that we want to do, and then we also have some Badlands boost from last week uh, that we're going to read for y'all. First up, we have Mid-Atlantic Business Council, or Alliance. All right, hold up, hold up. Where is it at? Boom. With renewal season and open enrollment behind us, it's important to note that we at Mid-Atlantic Business Alliance are still able to enroll you in Cigna PPO insurance plans. David Becker and his son, Jesse, of Mid-Atlantic Business Alliance are here, here to help you get the best possible PPO insurance coverage at affordable rates. If you think the cost of groceries has exploded, you should see what the hospitals are charging these days. Without the proper PPO protection, you could be liable for tens of thousands of dollars in the event of a surgery or hospital stay. Mid-Atlantic Business Alliance has been helping small businesses and self-employed individuals save money and get the best possible insurance protection since 1990. Having a great nationwide network like Cigna will help you keep your costs down while providing the highest level of coverage. Call David to get a free quote today at 609-577-8557 or visit badlandsmedia.tv slash Becker. That's David at 609-577-8557 or go to badlandsmedia.tv slash Becker. All right, and next up, we have Goldco. All right, everybody watching this show is aware that Trump has got on the uh, anti-CBDC bandwagon for good reason, uh, among many others in MAGA. Up until now, the digital dollar or CBDC has been nothing but a headline, but right now things are developing at a rapid pace. Started with sweeping executive order from the Biden administration, and now central banks are even hiring for their development. Here's the thing, a digital dollar can be used to track your purchases, control what you buy, and even seize or freeze your assets. That's why it's critical to protect your money with precious metals like gold and silver. We've partnered with the top rated precious metals company, Gold Co., because they're a great company with an amazing reputation. Right now, they're giving you up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last for all qualified callers. Plus, all qualified callers this week will receive a free Ronald Reagan silver coin. Don't wait until all your money is under Biden's control. Go to BadlandsGold.com to learn how you can get started today. That's BadlandsGold.com. And I've also got a few boosts that came in from last week. So for people, uh, people are starting to like this system, which is great. Uh, I know a lot of people who either don't want to use the Rumble system or aren't watching live, or maybe they're watching on a different app or something like that. You can go to BadlandsMedia.tv, click the big red Support Badlands button, and there'll be a section there, Badlands Boost. You can choose individual shows to uh, submit a comment just like you were doing a Rumble rant. Um, and so we're going to get in the habit of checking these each week and at the end of every show, if you send any over during the show. So from last week, we have Lionheart, who sent over uh, 50 bucks and said, Good evening, gentlemen. Just saying thank you for all you do and letting BB know his rants are apparently seeping into my brain more than I ever knew. Mid-conversation with my wife the other day, I referred to her as Emperor Palpatine. <laughs> that's not a good idea. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> I, I, I can be a little risky with that stuff, but... You know, maybe I'll play Kyle's role in this particular case and say, I do, I disavow that sort of language directed at the wife. Uh, so that didn't come from me. But thank you for the support either way. Def, definitely not the Star Wars character you want to compare your significant other to. Um, no, no, no. Thank you very uh, much. Appreciate that rant. <laughs> Truth KLT sent $100 over, so much appreciated, and said, thank you, thank you, thank you for your intelligent, thoughtful discussion of Thursday's events. 
in particular the Putin interview for going deeper than the Tucker wannabe CIA aspect to analyze Putin's comments and impact. I knew I could count on you guys to take the win. Love me some defected. Thank Must you very much for that boost. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I thought about that Tucker interview for a while and it's going to come, it's going to come back up later on in, uh, one of the segments today or tonight in this show, but I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Trump or Mike sent over 17 bucks and said SCOTUS win for Trump, her Tucker and Putin interview. Another A plus show guys. Burning Bright introduces logical fallacy, never attribute to stupidity, that which can be explained by malice. That's a quote that I took from Patrick Gunnels. Uh, so thank you, Trump or Mike. Uh, yeah, that's a um, that's a refrain. I actually had found the original version of that. Uh, I don't know where Patrick had originally gotten it. I'll find it after the show, of course. I don't like remember I who. Do. I don't remember who said that originally. Yeah, I mean, it's an inversion on a, on a common saying, but I like it. I mean, it 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 works in this community. You know, never attribute to to stupidity that which can be explained by malice. And I do think that that's one of those sneaky little frameworks that the establishment, the, the false reality, as Chris would refer to it as, they've sort Han of programmed it's, Han it's an inversion of Hanlon's razor. Okay. There we go. And, uh, you know, I think that Han that original Hanlon's ra razor is a bit of a, it's a bit of a clever subversion in and of itself where it gets people, it, the reason a lot of us get called conspiracy theorists and that conspiracy theory even has a negative connotation or a silly connotation is partly because the establishment has branded it that way, right? And they've said, you know, it may look like there's all these malicious people out there in the government and in positions of power, but really they're all just incredibly stupid. And it's like, well, that makes actually much less sense than the fact that people who want to exert power over people below them probably put themselves into positions of power to do that. It's yeah. much more likely that they did that rather than them all being idiots. Uh, yeah, and then, I would say so. yeah, a uh, couple more. Uh, we got, I think, hold on, just on that. I think yeah. Hanlon's razor is best applied in the context of in, like individual relationships. Mm -hmm. So it's right. like if you did something that harmed me in some way, it would be wrong of me to assume it was malice. I have right. no reason yeah, to think that you would have any malice against me. You probably right. made an honest mistake, even if it was something that harmed me. And it was like, you know what? That was a stupid of BB to, to do that. Right. right. And, but I, and I think that's where Hanlon's razor actually makes a lot of sense. And probably in small business too, like an employee yeah. does something that harms the business. It's like, is this employee trying to put my business under? Probably not. They probably were having a bad day and they did something stupid. Yeah. But where Hanlon's razor falls apart is in power structures right. where you have some of eight people to have something to be gained by whatever it was that harmed another individual. So government yeah. is the great example. I think that's where it like it You're it right. Breaks it's, down. it's about um, you know, Patriots in Progress who's on Rugpull Radio, obviously one of the Bitcoin go boys. One of the things he was talking about a lot, one of the terms he was using a lot at Gart Irvine in January was incentive structures, right? So you said power structures, which is obviously the case. Um, but what do power what do power structures exist to gain? They exist for incentive structures. These people are incentivized, right? right? A lot of time we look at the banking system and they go, oh, the banking system, they don't mean anything by it. Like they didn't, they didn't mean to crash the economy. I mean, yes, they did end up with all of the middle class's assets when they inflate these bubbles and then burst these bubbles 
and people that have a lot of money already sitting on the sidelines, uh, it's really advantageous for them. So there's incentive structures, right? And um, it's important to keep those in mind. Yep. Uh, Jim Jim Gibson sent 50 bucks over, said, is the RNC to be trusted now? I'm getting solicitations from them with supposed DJT messages, support, get out the vote, and candidate support, and his signature. The RNC. Honestly, I don't know. Um, last I saw, Trump was wanting direct donations to him, but I, honest, I honestly just don't know. Um, if you see Trump shared or boosted, then I would go with that. But... Right. Um, direct. I mean, I th personally, I think direct donations to a candidate that you want to support or a cause are the best way to go. And uh, big organizations like RNC. I mean, the bigger the organization is, the more, uh, the less of your your dollar is actually going to make it to where you intend it to go. So that's just a good general rule. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Support. I know that. I know speaking. that Trump. Trump doesn't want to trash and like sink the entire RNC though, because he's choosing people he supports for share for chair, mm -hmm. right? Like, so he endorsed that one guy from North Carolina last week or the week before for chair. So, as much as there's all this hatred of the RNC and much of yeah. it is uh, well allocated to them, um, Trump isn't exactly saying cut off all funding from the RNC. It needs to die on the vine. He's uh, he's selecting he's selecting people for for placement into it. So, um, yeah, I would just I would just always consider direct direct donations to the specific cause you want uh, to yeah. be supported. Speaking of Trump supporting the RNC, you know, I've I've, I've struggled with that in the past, but um, I think a big thing that Trump has done is try to uh, we we often talk about him being a symbol or a cipher more so than a just an individual or a politician. And I think that one of the kind of gifts that he's given to the MAGA base that's paying enough attention or using their own discernment enough is the idea of focusing on ideas and platforms rather than power structures, to use the power structures analogy that you're bringing up. Um, the RNC is a power structure. It's a platform. It exists for a reason. It may be necessary uh, for now, but I think that Trump is choosing to mostly boost specific individuals because he's he's boosting ideas. And I think that the American public needs to get back to ideas rather than yeah. um, the RNC and the blue team versus the red team. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see then, some uh, comments in chat about my lamp not defecting tonight. Um, I don't think it's hot enough. I didn't turn it on until like 815 <laughs> It'll 8.30. So give it a little while. If here in an hour, it's still uh, it's still asleep. I'll I'll see what I can do. But I think it's just <laughs> I think it's just not warm enough yet. And we have one more comes from Eternal Optimist. Twenty five bucks says you fellas are remarkable. Nowhere in all our media is there a more thought provoking, insightful, intelligent talk show. Promise that Kyle and I did not write this. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate your optimistic spin, your thorough knowledge of the topics you discuss, willingness to consider that you might be wrong. Uh, that that doesn't happen and your attempts to keep the show fairly clean. It's frustrating and unfortunate that some of the Badlands crew feel it necessary to use the F word and worse in order to make a point. Doesn't belong in any talk show, especially if you replace the MSM. Never missed your show, albeit near, nearly always on re replay. So this boost option is a great way to send some love your way. Keep up the great work, gents. Um, I very much appreciate that, Eternal Optimist. The irony of this is that you probably sent this rant over before the debut episode of 
Cultural Heretics with myself and Julian Zerum, in which we took quite a quite a few comments about uh, some language, but we tried to be pretty clear there. Um, you know, mileage varies, and we do try to keep it mostly clean. Uh, but I do think that there's there's some hand rigging in this community that people need to get over a bit when uh, it's okay if it's not to your taste, but um, you know we can't we also can't try to censor people on on uh, to people on media platforms that whose entire goal is to decentralize media. So yeah, there's a balance. Um, really appreciate the compliment and that boost. Um, I think I dropped an f bomb like two weeks ago. You did uh, last week, I'm pretty sure, like a few <laughs> or times. maybe last week. Um, um, I will say a word about profanity on our shows. So I personally don't believe that there is such a thing as bad words because mm -hmm. words are just mouth noises. And yeah. what is bad is the meaning you assign to those mouth noises and the intention behind those mouth noises. So that's where, that's where a word goes from being um, something meant to give emphasis to something being profane. Yes. Um, so that's, and that's where, and I'm not saying that I'm, I perfectly uh, navigate that line between those two. Um, but I do try to uh, use less profanity on when I'm on air than I do in just regular conversation, because you just never know who's watching and who you might turn off yeah. uh, by dropping profanity. But you don't want the message. I don't. To get I, lost. I also, when I feel passionate and I want to give emphasis to something, I'm not afraid to use profanity, yeah. Um, yeah. because that's what it's for: is to give, give emphasis, and uh, to make uh, statements more impactful. So, and I yeah. think because both you and I are more selective when we're on the air and when we use profanity, it actually makes it function better because we're right. using it for the function that it's best designed for. But so many yeah. of these words that are, we consider in the American language to be profane, to be cuss words, their roots are not profane. Their roots are someone's name, or they're a French word that used to mean something else, or they're, they're derived, the, the, the history of these words are not as a curse word. They yeah. meant something else, but things started getting used as a means to give emphasis to something. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that there will be new cuss words 50 to 100 years from now based on words we use right now that we don't think at all of being that they're profane. Right. But give it 100 years and look what people do with the English language. They'll take a word and turn it into a verb or an adjective or a noun. Like it's constantly changing. We're constantly uh, writing. But one of the things I like about Mike, Michael Malice, um, and more and more, I disagree with him on many things. But one of the things I like about Michael Malice is that he's made a brilliant point that language is like the ultimate um, true anarchy that proves that anarchy can work. It's like this closed system where anarchy, meaning there's no rules, works so well because we're constantly evolving language. And we do it just based on our interactions with each other. We don't do it because some teacher comes in and tells us what it is. We do that to, we do, we go to teachers for like, what are the rules that have been come up with at that time? But those rules change every year, right? Yeah. And there's constant debates over how, where a comma goes and whether or not you can start a sentence with and or whatever, right. like all this, all this stuff. 
You can, by the way. Um, but language is something where we constantly ourselves, each individual is having input in how that language evolves. And um, there will be new cuss words, I am sure of it, somewhere down the road. Because yeah. the cuss words that we regard as cuss words today were not regarded as cuss words 100, 200 years ago. If you dropped an F-bomb, depending on where you were, but if you dropped an F-bomb like 250 years ago, it wasn't a profane word. It meant to plant a yeah. seed. It meant right. that you were sowing seed into a farm. Yeah. Of course, it became a pejorative. It became a description of a verb. It became a description of people engaging in coitus. It became a picture of a, a word that was used to allude to people having kids, right? And then it became profane because you're not supposed to talk about sex in public. And then that word kept evolving until now. It's like, oh my gosh, the F-bomb. It's so profane. In Boston, it is basically the word the. So it's a totally different rules yeah. here. Well, we took um, a word that was a verb that wasn't even English. It was like French or something. And yeah. um, we uh, took a word that was only a verb. Yeah. And then now it is now a verb, an adverb, an adjective, a noun. Yeah. It's all of those things. Br Brad would have heard the use this way, but using the F word. Uh, so F-U-C-K-I-N, not even I-N-G, but I-N, sort of with an apostrophe. Um, there is a like just a manner of speaking where I grew up in Boston, um, more among men, but basically everybody that will start sentences with that word. And what it's basically doing is it doesn't have the same force of saying it when you're really passionate. <clears throat> it's leading in and letting the other person in Boston know that what you're, the story you're going to tell is one that annoyed you. So, mm -hmm. you know, you'd say like, uh, instead of going like, ah, man, I'm going to tell you about this thing that happened to me at the bank. You know, you'd say, effing, I'm going to tell you about this, right? And in other places, they look at you like, why, why did you just drop an F-bomb, right? But here, people say it as just a start of a sentence, and it's not, n nobody thinks that you're doing that. You know, you still try not to say it around kids. I do want to make one more point about this because, you know, we had a couple, I even saw a couple of people in the chat. They were mad because I referred to some people as communists on uh, Thursday's episode of Cultural Heretics. And uh, it was because Julian's rum had used um, Jesus Christ in in one of his mm. uh, in one of his rants, and uh, I just want to make it clear a couple things. You know, I want to give something to the audience and take something away uh, because it, it it holds for you seeing me. I can only speak for myself. You guys seeing me on any of these shows, I personally try to kind of use that language as a spice, like Kyle said, sparingly because it's more impactful that way. Um, and I don't blame anybody for it being not to your taste if somebody like I didn't say that terminology on that show, but he did. That's something that he says on occasion, right? That's just a figure of speech to him. Now, it's okay to me that you don't like people saying this, but the reason I refer to that as communism is I want it to just be very clear, and I will never apologize for this, if you try to enforce your personal rules onto my speech, you are being a communist in my view. It is okay for you to tell me that you don't like the way I communicate. I have many people that say, well, not many, but I have people that come into my writing and they'll write a comment and say, you know, if you wrote this shorter, I want you to write this shorter sentences because it would be more effective. The last two people that said that on my Substack were both engineers. So, <laughs> but guess who I'm not, guess who I'm trying to appeal to? Not engineers, right? So the same, the same change to language that would attract you more to my communication 
will repel other people that I have attracted with that communication. Yeah. So yeah. It, it seems like sometimes we're speaking to children. It's a small subset of people. But my point is, if you're in a decentralized, a non-community built on the decentralization of power structures, of language, of expression, of ideas, and you start trying to assign your rules of what you think is right and wrong to say to those people, it's not going to go well. So I'm just letting you know, and I was trying to be very honest, that Cultural Heretics is a show that's supposed to be a little more rough around the edges. We're making fun of culture. We're probably going to put some video clips on there we wouldn't do on other shows. If you are offended by the F word, don't watch a Bill Burr comedy skit, right? That it's, right. Just, it's just the way it is. There, there comes a time where, when if you are going and watching a Bill Burr comedy skit and you're mad about it and you knew what he did, it is 100% on you to engage with communication styles you want. It is never incumbent upon the communicator to adapt their style of communication to your ears. So just like, I'll, I'll just try to say it like the last time, I will never modify my communication style to suit anybody. That, that, is, what, that is why you are free to like each individual that you like engaging with, that's totally your prerogative. But that's the point I was trying to make last week. And that's how I think everybody in this, most people in this community feel. Yeah. All right. Um, and thanks again for the, for the boost. Um, all right. Let's talk about Fanny Willis. I hope that everybody watched it. Like it was a two day event, that courtroom. And I don't know. I haven't looked to see what the views were. Last I looked, like one of the days had like thirty five thousand views, um, but the entire day of uh, or the entire two days of um, that hearing were worth were worth watching, especially if you're like me and you just like watching courtroom stuff, um, because a lot of stuff played out um, that informed what happened later. So, uh, for starters. Um, what was going on is that Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade, as you guys know, have had this relationship that they've hidden and Fannie Willis took on Nathan Wade to her prosecution team of Trump and paid him way more than she's paying anybody else. They've been taking vacations and trips together and they haven't been report. She hasn't been reporting them as gifts, even though she says they were gifts. It looks like they both have perjured themselves before the court um, earlier on. And then again at this hearing this week, and Mike Roman, who is one of the defendants in the case, the RICO case against Trump and others, uh, because Wade and Willis have been going through a divorce, they filed to get access to uh, documents and filings in their divorce cases and found out about the affair and found out about these trips. And so they made a filing with um, this, the judge in this case saying, look, Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade have perjured themselves they need to be removed from this case. They're being dishonest with the court about their relationship and about their filings. They're actually breaking the law as far as it goes with prosecutors having to report their incomes and all this stuff. And um, other people f signed on to it as defendants, including Trump. Trump signed on to the case. A number of other defendants signed on to the case or into this motion. And that's why, as you watch this case, this hearing play out, you would have a witness on the stand and there would be like four or five lawyers 
want to ask them questions before it got around to the defense attorneys who were representing the person on the stand. Okay. Um, which seems really unfair, but they've, it's all, that's, it's all the, def, not all the defendants, but it's several of the defendants that are in this Rico case signed on to this motion and in this hearing. And so they're all getting to ask questions of her. So you got, it was cool to me, if you're a law nerd, it was cool to see the way different attorneys went at these witnesses. Now the cool thing or the impressive thing to me, um, is that, uh, Ashley Merchant, the main attorney, who's the attorney for Mike Roman, who was the primary attorney who was grilling the witnesses and making the case to the judge. The impressive thing to me about her is that her plan for that day got blown up in the first hour. And I know I'm getting into actuals here, but let me do some actuals first and then we'll defect from it. But her her plan that day, her, her the series of witnesses she wanted to call and in the order she wanted to call them got blown up at the very beginning. Um, and she had to redo her plan for how she was going to one, get, get witnesses on the stand and which order she was going to get them on the stand in. And then in order to have, if I remember right, in order to have Wade and Fanny onto the stand, to get to ask them questions, she had to get certain testimony from certain witnesses. Those witnesses had to say certain things in order to open the door for these other witnesses to be allowed to be on the stand. And so Merchant, to me, did a phenomenal job because her plan got blown up within the first hour by, by Bradley not showing. And then when he did show, he pled, he didn't plead the fifth, but he said that he'd been advised by the Georgia bar that he couldn't answer any of these questions. So Ashley Merchant had to go a completely different route to get to where she wanted to go. And it ended up working in her favor and she ended up being able to pull it off. And she did so well. Now here's where we can get a little bit defected and we can like get a 40,000 foot view and look at what happened here. Um, the, the people who came in and testified, they are basically ratting out Wade and Fannie Willis, and they're doing their best to not rat them out on their relationship and on the things that they've been doing that they know they shouldn't be doing. It was Ashley Merchant and the other, other um, what was Sadow and a couple others. It was their job to get, these are hostile witnesses. They don't want to be there. They don't want to be testifying about this topic. But it was these these attorneys, it was their job to get them to admit to things in, a, in the right way in order to open the door to other testimony and other evidence coming in. And so they were hostile. And these lawyers, especially Merchant and Sadow, did a, did a spectacular job getting those admissions on the record. And they did such a good job that when they got done with one of those attorneys, and I don't remember if it, it wasn't Wade. I don't remember if it was um, the former partner of, I think it was the lady who was the former partner of Fannie Willis um, or, or from a friend of Fannie Willis. As soon as they were done questioning her, Fannie Willis couldn't contain herself and burst into the room and ran up to the witness stand ready to testify. She had not been called. That speaks to me, that spoke volumes about, just how effective 
that hearing that morning was. Fannie right. Willis, who isn't supposed to be watching the hearing, she's not supposed to be paying attention. She's supposed to be sequestered. She's not supposed to know when they're done with anybody, but she knew because she was paying attention and we all know it. She was so distraught and in such a furious mode that she forgot all decorum. She forgot all of her training and ran down the hallway and burst into the courtroom ready to be called to the witness stand and then realized she hadn't been called and had to pretend that she was, Oh, I just, I just heard a commotion and figured it was my turn. Everybody knows she was paying attention. Everybody knows that she was and her performance such that it was <laughs> on that witness stand. See, uh, let me tell you something, guys, something I have a guilty pleasure. I have a few, but one of my guilty pleasures, which I partake in way too often is I watch YouTubers who cover insane court appearances and it's usually sovereign <laughs> citizens and it's usually Karen's and it's, um, people who are way are like in court and they're still high from the night before. It's basically Jerry Springer in the courtroom. Okay. I have this guilty pleasure where I watch these YouTube channels that basically cover stuff like that is defendants behaving badly in court and I get a kick out of it. It's fun. Fanny Willis was exactly that type of a defendant. Like she was featured on some of those shows I watch, which are not political shows. They just cover courtroom shenanigans and Fannie Willis fit perfectly into their lineup of defendants behaving badly. That's basically what it is. Defendants behaving badly on the witness stand or in the courtroom. And that's what she did. And I think like it is such a testament to how badly this is going for her. Um, also, I will knock out some fake news real quick. She did not wear a backwards dress. Yeah, that's her, not her true. dress yeah. was not on backwards. We're probably never going to recover that because that misinformation went out and it's gone around the world three times by the end of the day that her dress was on backwards. Her dress was not shockingly, on backwards. On that note, Kyle, I just want to say shockingly, the main purveyor of that false narrative, it's not a huge deal, but it is, it does make you look stupid, was, uh, was the very famous totally definitely MAGA guy who was fired by BuzzFeed for plagiarism. Uh, oh. So, so oh, yeah. somewhat shockingly, that is where that completely false, stupid viral story came from. Um, and I don't, I don't think people were stupid for thinking it was real. Like when I first saw it, I was oh, like, no. oh, I guess, I guess that was real. Right. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny. I've noticed, I've noticed that that conning crowd recently, they kind of, um, they grab onto whatever is the big story of the day, right? That, that MAGA is, that MAGA is interested in, but they, they take, first of all, an inconsequential detail, make it mimetic yeah. and lie about what it is and misrepresent it. Yeah. And then what that does is it allows the left to fact check MAGA by saying the most viral thing to come out of this hearing was BS that MAGA was pushing. So it's almost like yeah. some of these people aren't actually on our side, but you know, just food for thought. I know most of us know this. Well, I but. mean, it's really, I, I for one am totally shocked that a former Buzzfeed journalist would misreport something. Um, I like what Red Lisa just said in chat. You can't wear a dress backwards if you have big boobs. 
like the physics, the structure of the dress doesn't work. <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't work. Her dress though was people quickly found her dress um, online in the shop. And what it is, is a dress that has a zipper in the front and the back. And you're not supposed to zip it all the way front up in the front. Like that's the de yeah. the design of it is that you don't zip it up in the front. You leave it partially unzipped and laying over and Fanny, for whatever reason, zipped it all the way up. I'm thinking it's because she had stacks of cash um, in, in her bra. I'm <laughs> not really time. sure, but um, my understanding is that Fanny always has stacks of cash everywhere she well, goes. Well, that's what her daddy told her, man. And um, her, her Black Panther dad trained her <laughs> to always have stacks of cash. So, um, yeah. So anyway, that that's a total distraction. Uh, it's yeah. a total distraction, but guys, Fanny Willis gave the most, like it was her, her performance is amazing. I could, I really, I, it's when it was over, I wanted to watch it again. I, I just, I did wanted to watch, I wanted to watch it again because it was so amazingly bad and she could not control herself. And now I want to say something about the judge. So I saw a lot of, uh, black pilling going around trying to undo our entertainment. You notice how every time we have like a good win, the black pillars come out and try and rob it from us. So the black pillars were out in force a little bit last week, trying to get us to think we lost somehow or that we're going to lose in Rico because that's all black pillars do is try and get us to think we're going to lose. That's their objective every day. Um, we're going to lose because Fannie Willis and that judge, Judge McAfee, uh, used to work together. So therefore they're friends. Therefore it's a good old buddy system. And the judge is going to, um, he's not, he's not going to rule in favor. He's going to protect Fanny. But if you'll just reject that black pill for a moment and reflect on how bad that hearing went for her, the moment for the judge to step in and protect Fanny was before Fanny lost her shit on the witness stand. <laughs> if the judge was going to protect her. He missed every opportunity to do so. He let her be hysterical. He let her interrupt the attorney. He let her be a fool and lose control and flap papers around and yell and be defensive and give long winding answers that avoided the question. He let her give this spectacularly bad performance. If the judge was going to protect her, he would have stopped. He would have protected her at the moment she needed protection from herself, with, from herself. <laughs> yeah. So I understand why people think that, oh, because they used to work together, um, he's going to protect her. But how many people have you worked with and you would never step out and protect them because they're terrible people? <laughs> like, do you think the judge doesn't know what a terrible person she is? He probably, he may have hated working with her. We don't really know. Right. He may have absolutely yeah. hated this woman. Um, they may have been friends. I don't know. But the judge's moment to protect her would have been at the very beginning of her losing control. And he didn't. He let her lose control. And now I'm not an attorney and I'm not a judge. But what I have read from other attorneys is that if a judge is facing a difficult decision in a case, and I have, as a person who's a nerd about this stuff, I have seen this play out in other cases. Um, 
a judge who is going to make a ruling or is possibly going to make a ruling that is going to be difficult um, against a defendant, he he will sometimes let that person basically have enough rope to hang themselves with. He'll let them go a little far on the witness stand. He'll let them make a mockery of the courtroom a bit. He'll let them speak more than they really need to speak for their own good. And what that does is it gives him more room, more imaginary clout to make that adverse ruling because then they can't come back and say, well, the judge didn't let me speak or the judge didn't allow me to say what I wanted to say to defend myself. So a judge will sometimes let that defendant go on and on and on and on so that they can't come back and say that they were muzzled during that hearing. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what McAfee was doing here is he was letting Fanny show her Fanny to all the world while she was on that witness stand. And now when he comes back and gives an adverse ruling, if he does that accuse an accusation that he didn't let her defend herself won't fly because he let her, he gave her as much room as he possibly could. Um, Cliff, so Cliff Fanny was just a- says in the chat, I think that's the real Cliff I, but if you are, welcome to the show. Said they hate to rule such that they'll be overturned or roasted in the court of or roasted in the court of public opinion. Right. So exactly that kind of, you know, let, letting them have enough rope to hang themselves for the narrative, right. for the memes, uh, because the more mimetic the the witness <laughs> goes, the more mimetic the testimony goes, the more sort of justified, uh, not legally necessarily but certainly the court of public opinion looks more favorably upon whatever decision that judge gets. So to your point, the judge sort of gets the, the judge sort of gets narrative shielding applied based on Fanny Willis, just continuously, yeah. not just perjuring herself, but just making a mockery of herself. Yeah. And um, speaking of the court of public opinion, who was Fanny Willis last the week before last? She was a future star. Yeah. She had profiles in major magazines of the elite, you know, the intelligentsia in the upper elite. They treated her as a future star. She's going places. She's the woman who's going to get Trump. They're doing profiles for her. They're every every lefty journo only has kind things to say about her. Um, they're writing articles about how professional she is and uh, detail oriented and all of this stuff, you know, they're, she, she was, um, getting much adulation from the left and in the media. And she had this character built up and she destroyed that character that had been built up for her in the, in an hour, she completely destroyed it. And then her dad came in and destroyed it even more. Um, but she, she ruined it all. And all it took, all it took was a bold attorney getting access to some court filings and her and Wade's um, divorce hearings or divorce proceedings and pointing out that she and Wade took trips together and pointing out that, that, um, and asking about who paid for the trips and then she lost control. That's, that's all it took. And then she had to come up with this crazy lie that she paid Nathan Wade back with cash every time 
and there's no receipts for it and nobody can prove anything, but you just have to trust me, bro. I paid cash for it. Yeah. And she never reported the the race card and everything else. (laughs) Yes. That spun off the rails. And how, I mean, I, I knew the media would run cover for her the next day and say that she gave a brilliant and brave performance. I I knew they would. They did that. I, I thought it was so bad that they wouldn't even try to do that because I thought that they would at least understand that throwing their lot in with her after that sort of a performance was a terrible idea. But, you know, maybe that that that's why often when we discuss that that uh, infamous Q saying these people are stupid, um, I often apply that more to the media than the deep state as we know them, uh, more to the media defenders of the deep state, because, man, I mean, they they really don't know when to let to let a narrative go and to let to let somebody go and that kind of thing. Yeah. I I knew they would, but even when I saw it I was surprised yeah. that they had <laughs> that they had that 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 moxie to do that. Um I and it made me think about like we all should have known this. And maybe many of you did. But we all should have known that this case would fall apart with in such a spectacular fashion because this is how the people that are out to get Trump always seem to be. They always seem to be these deranged characters who once the spotlight is on them directly, not through a filter of the media that's friendly to them, but directly on them with no filter, you realize that person is insane or that person is a criminal (laughs) themselves or both. And it happens over and over and over again. And that's why Trump is always so, so comfy. He knows who these people are and he knows that these cases against him will fall apart. Um, And he's also using these cases to forward his ends, not theirs. They think they're winning and they think that they're, they're doing what they want to do, but really they're just charging at Trump's matador's cape. And they don't realize that on the other side of it is a, is a brick wall or uh, quicksand or what, whatever. Um, and then this moment arrives like it did this week. And suddenly they realize that they were never in control of this thing. It was always Trump who was in control. They fell for the, for the trap. Trump is always the bait. And his enemies always mistake him uh, as bait that's available to them. And they never realize the trap that's around them. Um, and boy, did they realize it this week down in Georgia? Yeah. Uh, because this is, and I said this, I don't remember if it was on this show. I know I said it on my own show. Um, that the way I, I said this a couple of weeks ago or three, maybe that the way I think the Georgia case is going to go is that Fannie's going to be removed at some point or step off of it and Wade too. And whoever inherits it, isn't going to want it. Right. And they're just going to end up, they're just going to end up throwing the case out or, or deciding not to prosecute it because it's so screwed up and it's got such a bad rep. Um, I really don't think it'll ever go anywhere. I think that they'll just Fanny and Wade will get taken off of it in embarrassment. Someone else will get thrown up and they're going to be like, ah, I don't want this thing Yeah. because, because it never should have been brought in the first place. It was always Fanny Willis's um, fantasy case because she knew that it would get by her a lot of political energy in the political system 
to be the woman who brought this big case against Trump and all of his bad friends in Georgia. And she knew that it was going to get her funding from the federal government. She knew it was going to get her meetings in DC. It was going to get her all these media profiles and the person. And once she's off of it, the next person who comes in, is going to be like, no, this, ne it never made sense to bring this case and we can't prosecute it. It's going to, it's, it, you know, nobody's going to want to finish building this case that she, that she brought. So I think it dies, um, yeah. well before trial, well before trial. And at the same time though, while we're all laughing about her performance and we're all laughing at the dress and we're laughing about other things, let's not overlook what Fannie Willis did on the witness stand. She admitted to crimes. She admitted to taking cash from her campaign and keeping it at home in a safe. She admitted to accepting gifts from Nathan Wade and not reporting them. Uh, very expensive gifts. She admitted to transporting thousands of dollars in cash across state lines for lunches with a friend only to drive back. Um, she admitted chess, Kyle 5d chess. She Willis. said, she said she never went to the white house yet. Her name is on the white house visitor logs. Um, I don't, I don't think this all in ends well for fan. <laughs> Uh, she, 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 she messed up. She didn't just mess up in her performance. She admitted to crimes. I um, think she, she did fantastically through the framing of exonerating Donald Trump and advancing the great awakening. So she had a fantastic performance, maybe the best of the year so far, which is saying something and knew exactly what she was doing. If her goal was to help Trump in every way, perjure herself constantly, incriminate herself, destroy any semblance of credibility this case against Donald Trump had, and forward and accelerate the Great Awakening. Um, if she meant to do anything other than that, then maybe you're correct and she didn't have a great <laughs> performance. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You, you, you seem to be jumping to some conclusions there. You, you know, maybe yeah. you need to correct the record. Like, are you telling me that relentlessly incriminating yourself in the most viral and mimetic manner possible is not a good thing to do because the media told me it was actually the best performance that they've seen uh you know it's funny i mean i love the way you laid all that out but it's my main takeaway is you know looking at it purely from a from an from an actual perspective somebody i want to give a shout out to that a lot of people have probably heard about is jonathan turley you know, legal yeah. writer. Um, I like Turley because I find him to be like, I don't mean this to be insulting when I say there's, you know how we talk about the normie layers of the collective mind. We, we talk about there's different layers. That doesn't mean that any of these layers are necessarily automatically better than the other ones. It's just the people watching this show, people who consider themselves anons, who talk about the QOP and are not afraid to talk about anything. Um, we, there, there's a layer, there's a layer above us in the collective mind that they talk about these things in an honest manner, but they don't delve into what they consider conspiracy theories, right? Jonathan Turley's not going to start writing about the Great Awakening and the QOP. He's not yeah. going to delve into some of the stuff we do. Maybe he follows it. Maybe he just keeps it on the DL. 
but I respect him because he he um he he applies pretty consistent framing to the cases that he looks at. Uh, sometimes he talks about things that could go against Trump. Um, but with this one, I really liked something that he said. He wrote the other day about Fannie Willis, and he said uh, he was using it as a larger cipher to look at the actual level of all of the Trump cases going on at once. And it's sort of what you laid out there, where on an actual level, not touching the narrative, Turley was saying that Trump's strategy could be less about vindication and more about attrition. The key, the word he used was attrition. And I really liked that framing of it because it was, it sort of put a, a slightly different spin on the same thing that we've been talking about for quite a while. The idea that if you are a Trump supporter, if you follow this stuff as we do, your foundational assumption is that Trump is not guilty of the various sins and crimes he is being accused of in these various cases. And so, mm -hmm. of course, it's stressful when we first see indictments being handed down on him. It's stressful when people consider the possibility of convictions, even following these sorts of things, pending appeals. You know, we know it's a miscarriage of justice. That terminology gets overused, but it absolutely applies to everything that's going on with the Trump witch hunt. And Trump himself, often in all caps, boosts the idea that this is a witch hunt, this is a miscarriage of justice. Um, but I really like that attrition framing because Turley was saying Trump doesn't need to be legally vindicated in all of these cases in the way a lot of us probably think about. You know, we think about him being acquitted. We think about him being found not guilty. We think about appeals and maybe that's the way these things will go. And I think we've assumed that a lot of the time. But I think that he, he brought up an interesting other alternative path. He specifically referenced uh, Jack Smith. And he had said, you know, what some of these prosecutors might look for is a means of getting themselves disentangled from the Trump quicksand as soon as the opportunity presents itself. So they don't want to be seen as sort of submitting to Trumpism Maybe they've got dark masters that we can all theorize about and they have certain incentive structures to go after him. Some of these prosecutors, you know, they're part of this machine. But Turley's stance was that even the bad guys will look for outs if they get a real, genuine and defensible out from some of these situations. One that he surfaced was the idea of Trump being installed as president once more uh, might give some of these prosecutors the out they need to disengage and drop cases rather than exonerating yeah. trump rather than finding him not guilty they might just say well there's not really much we can do now he's the president you know we were looking at these things in a different context and so now we're we're just we ran out of time right it's sort of like the little brother who doesn't want to play monopoly anymore because he's losing right but he can say that he didn't he didn't the blame lose the game, game on Garland. He just stopped playing. The blame game on Garland has begun. Yep, there you go. Right to to that point, the blame game on Garland has begun, and now they're all bashing Garland, which they they did a little bit like a year ago or so, um, a year and a half ago. I remember reporting on finding some articles w amongst the the media intelligentsia where they were saying that Garland is too slow, Garland's too fair, Garland needs to be more aggressive. Um, 
now they're really starting to say that Garland has failed to get Trump and we all just need to come to terms with that. And this is like this is like the elite in that area. They're 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 starting to recognize that. And I think right. that I honestly think they are they are, they always knew. I think a lot of them did. I think a lot yeah. of them already already knew that. But we've been saying that Garland was not this bad man, this boogeyman of the left that the media was trying to make you believe he was. But the left and the right were trying to program people into thinking that Garland was this mean man who was going to come and get Trump. But he's never been that. He's never been this this bad guy, quote unquote. Um, and we've been uh, we've taken a lot of flack for that position, especially me. Yeah, but. Feeling pretty confident now. Now, well, and like you said, it's it's it's. I, I often use a refrain in my writing when I say when you when you want to when you want to see what the enemy fears the most, look to the whip and lash of their words. It's yep. it's you know who they are who they are attacking. Obviously, that goes to Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, us in this whole community, everybody watching this show. The deplor the basket of deplorables. I think didn't we level up recently? What was the term? We weren't we weren't deplorables now. I think they've deployed something else against us. I can't remember what it is. Uh, it, it was catchy know. though. But either way, they're, they're, we're all we're all aware that they fear the MAGA movement. They fear the America First movement. They fear Donald Trump, who represents it. Uh, but to your point, you know, sometimes I think we miss the forest for the trees a little bit because there's figures that we have our suspicions of, especially their past and everything, for good reason. But we miss when there's infighting within the machine, and we miss some of the signals that that can sometimes give us, you know? You don't have to like Merrick Garland. You don't have to even think that he's good, right? But if the enemy is starting to coalesce against him, then at the very least, it suggests that he has not forwarded the agenda that they would like forwarded. Now, right. it's you can still, you can have your cake and eat it too, as I always say. You don't have to think that Merrick Garland is a good guy or is trying to exonerate Donald Trump. You could merely think that he's a more shrewd, intelligent deep state practitioner or member and he doesn't want to be on the wrong side of a legal battle that he knows damn well sure is not going to end with donald trump being thrown in prison forever right he knows where this is going he probably knows who the next president of the united states is going to be and he probably doesn't want to be on the wrong end of a potentially questionable legal campaign against that man so yeah. it doesn't mean that this guy's a good guy or on our side when these sorts of things happen and uh and again it but it, it's encouraging when you look at that sort of pattern so i, I just liked for i liked turley's framing of the attrition mindset and i think if you just apply that word to what trump is doing you and i often talk about you know last year i had said that the trial the trials plural are donald trump's political campaign if you 100%. apply that framing to this as well, the attrition mindset that Jonathan Turley is forwarding, you combine those two things and you think, okay, so the longer these cases go, the more ridiculous, you know, you can you can look at Fannie Willis as a uh, as a microcosm of the Trump witch hunt in general. The longer the Trump witch hunt narrative and the is is in front of the world, and the more ridiculous it gets, and the more Trump signal boosts it, the more it spins its tires. The more it boosts Donald Trump's campaign in the court of public opinion, and to Turley's, to, there's my, there's my little uh, <laughs> thumbs up, and to Turley's point, on an actual level, these these cases might not necessarily get, they might not have the finality 
on either side that a lot of us have been assuming they will. They might just spin themselves out and Trump knows they're going to spin themselves out. That's why he's boosting them so much. He's saying, come on, come on, come at me. I mean, you're going to tell me that Donald Trump was afraid of the E. Jean Carroll case or that he's actually afraid of that $350 million, et cetera, when he's the one boosting all the memes about the case every weekend, like every Friday night. So I don't think he's worried. No, I think I think Turley is spot on, and he he's one of my favorites uh, for the mm-hmm. reasons you listed. Um, <laughs> I think the media they were probably so thankful for that judgment in Letitia James' case because it allowed them to flip the media cycle, the na- the news narrative cycle after Willis into Trump now has to pay almost four hundred million dollars. Right. Um, and run with that instead into the weekend so that that's what's left in everybody's thoughts. Um, and they, 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 they try to bury the disaster that was Willis and Wade in Georgia. Um, the media will do that. They'll jump from one case to another. Whichever one looks the worst for Trump, that's the one they're going to focus on. And they'll forget, they'll ignore the other ones as much as possible. The... The judgment, while we're on it, what the judgment against Trump for all that money. Um, personally, I'm not worried about that one whatsoever. Uh, it will cost Trump money. Um, I think it's money Trump is very much willing to spend. I also think that because of Barbara Jones' involvement in that case, we who have been paying attention to the band and paying attention to other Trump cases know that wherever Barbara S. Jones appears – there is some sort of op going on and that it's all working towards a greater end. Uh, all that has happened with the teacher James is that she's costing Trump money, but she's giving him free in-kind donations to his campaign. She's proving that the system is after him. Um, even after his businesses, even though he has nothing to do with those businesses anymore Two, she's chasing away business from New York. Nobody's going to want to move their business to New York. That was already the case that nobody wanted to move their business there anymore. Yeah, they've um, all been moving it to Miami. There's been a lot of uh, yeah. there's been a lot of economic news that they're talking about um, Miami being the the new Wall Street. A lot of uh, right. financial it's, firms. People and, are going to Texas and they're going yeah. to Florida because there's freedom there, mm-hmm. and there's not this tyrannical deep state that's coming after them. Right. Um, so she's chasing away businesses, which is going to further harm New York. And people realize that. And you saw it. I caught some talking heads that are like these business multi-billionaire people. Uh, one of them is from that Shark Tank show who was saying that um, I, I, I just know him from Shark. I never watched that show. I just recognized yeah. him from being on there. He was even saying, I don't like Trump or you don't have to like Trump, but you can recognize that what Letitia James just did is completely criminal. And Kevin um, Leary, maybe he's usually I don't he know has some occasional base takes. I don't know, but business people are yeah. recognizing that even if and I'll tell you, look, even if a business person goes on TV or goes to the cameras of the media and says that they praise Letitia James for this, ignore their words. Watch what they do with their business. If they have a business in New York, they're now thinking I, I want to get that out. Watch how many businesses now relocate out of New York because they don't want to be taken to, they don't want to be put through the same treatment. Um, 
but I don't, I don't worry about it because um, of Barbara S. Jones and because I think this is just another case where, um, in my opinion, my speculation, all right, my theory is that maybe over 50% of Trump's businesses are actually sting operations. And I'm not, I think that the reason Barbara S. Jones was involved was to protect that information. And I think that the reason Trump allows so many businesses to fail is because they were never meant to succeed in the first place. Yeah. And I think that Trump may have just baited uh, Letitia James and others into coming after his businesses and giving him an opportunity to disclose that he really is Batman. Yeah. Like, I think she may have just stepped into a potentiality, opened up a potentiality where Trump will reveal in his defense later down the road that I didn't inflate these businesses value. They, their value to me wasn't so much the money. It was the swamp creatures I caught through doing business with them. Um, We'll see if that develops. That's a little pet theory that I have, but I think well, that- Well, that pattern is repeating itself in many ways of Trump. That's a pattern you know, we've uh, seen before. The, the disclosure defense that we were talking about almost yep. a year ago, well, a year ago about, about these things, uh, the idea being that uh, it, on an actual level, it would allow Trump to disclose. Uh, we, we've talked about this in light of the devolution theory. You know, if Trump was not, not going to disclose devo devolution, I don't think he will. But the idea being to compel disclosure of election fraud, of proof of election fraud, or of reasonable belief that there was election fraud in 2020, at the very least, that's really all Trump would have to, would be compelled to, uh, to prove. Um, but on a narrative level, the brilliance of the narrative shielding inherent in that kind of a strategy in all of this stuff is that Trump is not the one just throwing this stuff out there into the public record where the media would then weaponize it. They weaponize everything against him, but that would give them something to say. Trump's putting all this information out there. He's destabilizing the American political scene. You know, we think that all that's a good thing, but they'd use all that stuff. But if he's being compelled to do so legally, it gives him complete narrative shielding to disclose anything he wants to disclose, whether that's businesses, financial things. I mean, the tax case, it's also setting all these templates that you talk about quite a bit. Um, it's, and, and again, narrative shielding, if Trump is the one, uh, you know, if he's not, they would argue if Trump was just launching stuff out there about the 2020 election, right in the window leading up to the 2024 election, the enemy is going to is going to claim that he's interfering, ironically, in the 2024 election. But if Trump is being compelled to produce this stuff in 2024 yeah. by their legal system, then it gives him narrative shielding to do just that thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, great week. As far as Trump cases go, great week. Trump's headed to SCOTUS. He's got the the filings in the docs case. He got a win in the docs case. There's a There was a bit of a story going around that he had a loss because Judge Cannon didn't agree to a certain thing. But she said no for right now. That was actually her order. Her order was not right now, maybe later, after new information comes in. He had a lot of wins this week in his cases, and some of them directly involved him. And then the biggest one, of course, was James and Wade. Um, let's do um, our next two ads, and then, um, or is it three? Let's do one, two. Let's do our next uh, 
two ads and then we will uh go into our next topic about how evil putin is and how he's assassinating prisoners he's had yeah. in prison for three back years. to his old ways oh back to his old runs. ways right after tucker left left the country yeah <laughs> all right the wellness company life is unpredictable if we've learned anything these last four years it's that and while we can't possibly predict everything that might be thrown at us we can prepare for it Introducing two new emergency kits from the wellness company. The first aid emergency kit is the next level readiness for everything from sports activities to camping trips. Compact and convenient, this kit contains critical prescription medications and supplies that every American should have on hand as your go-to solution for any situation. The travel emergency kit is specially designed for life on the go. Compact, lightweight, and loaded with essentials for any adventure, whether it's a road trip, a hike, or just the unpredictability of daily life, be ready, response time matters. Next level readiness is at your fingertips with emergency kits from the wellness company. Stay one step ahead, visit badlandsmedia.tv slash TWC and use promo code BADLANDS for 10% discount. That's badlandsmedia.tv slash TWC, promo code BADLANDS. And next, arrow tags. Tired of the endless cycle of buying and tossing paper tree air fresheners out? Enter AeroTags, where their dream was to craft a solution to this very problem. AeroTags are the first ever laser-engraved, resentable car air fresheners made right here in the USA. Born in the makerspace of the Cleveland Public Library, AeroTags is not just a business, it's a revolution, a testament to the American dream. They're not just about freshening your space, but about doing it better with a commitment to longevity, aesthetics, and sustainability. AeroTags are designed to last longer, look great, and reduce waste, replacing those fleeting scents with something you can count on. Don't forget to grab your Badlands Media AeroTag, which is now available, or customize your own. Visit badlandsmedia.tv slash AeroTags, A-R-O-T-A-G-S, and use the promo code BADLANDS for 10% off your order. That's badlandsmedia.tv slash AeroTags, promo code BADLANDS. As I always say with these sponsors, uh, them, Beamish Metalworks, I love all the handmade stuff made in the USA. It fits it fits our audience perfectly. So happy for to have sure. That. All right. So this week, uh, as soon as Tucker left Russia, uh, Putin dropped his mask, donned his Darth Vader mask um, again, and went back to his old ways of putting uh, nuclear weapons in space, in the water, in the ground, in the food. Uh, everywhere on top of sharks, I think. On top of sharks, space sharks. Um, and then he uh went out to Siberia, where he's had Navalny in a prison for three plus years now, and he used force choke to kill the guy. And um, it's a good technique. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, that is a Sith technique. Yeah. You're right. He would use force choke. Yeah, I think he would use force choke. Mm-hmm. He might he might have uh he might have pulled his heart out of his chest right and you know Temple held it up in the air style. and did like Temple of Doom style thing. Yeah. Is it Kali Ma or whatever mm-hmm. he says? Um yeah, he totally did that. And um mm-hmm. so all of Tucker's work was undone undone. And thankfully the uh the level heads in DC decided to send Ukraine more money. And um that's the story. Yep, that's, that's it. And the pretty story, much... uh, you guys, we were wrong about the deep state. We were wrong about the proxy war in Ukraine. We were wrong about Ursula von der Leyen in the EU. We mm-hmm. were wrong about Joe Biden. Um, it turns out 
that the the country and the man that all of them are almost more unified against than Donald Trump, or at least as much. Um, he's a dastardly bad guy doing bad things. As somebody in the chat said, he is criming around. He's criming around so much that he waits for the perfect opportunity to crime. And you would think that the perfect opportunity to crime is when nobody's paying attention, but not for Vlad. He knows the perfect opportunity to crime is when the entire Western world is paying attention to him and, and accusing him of being a criminal and a dictator, he knows that is the moment in which you assassinate a political opponent who is considered a, a freedom fighter promoted by the very Western establishment that you stand opposed to. That is the moment where you, you've, you've just got the Western audience starting to consider you that maybe they've never considered you before besides this audience. You know, they've, there's a lot of normies who watch that Tucker interview. A lot of normies kind of went, huh, Maybe I don't like Vladimir Putin, but he seems like a reasonable man who's at least got his own reasons and mental framework, logical framework for doing what he does. And Putin knew this is the moment where I undo that goodwill and I and I make sure that the globalist establishment has all the reasons they need to go to war with me. Or maybe they're all just lying as they have been forever. And uh, all of this is bullshit. <laughs> I mean, I think... I, I I do think that this these two storylines, uh, really all the all the Russia storylines that have come out since Tucker did the interview, are Russia related storylines. They offered this audience who and, and us where we're trying to teach ourselves to be into the details, but then also be able to draw back and defect from the news narratives, and get a get a broad understanding of things. I think it offers us a good opportunity to use our defection skills to get outside the narratives and ask what makes more sense. The funding, the more funding for Ukraine is on the table in DC and suddenly not going there's well. This, it's not going well. It didn't look like it was going to pass. Um, Mike Johnson wasn't going to bring it up to a vote. I think is what he was saying. Um, yep. And all of a sudden, there's this mysterious report and an emergency alert out of the Intel committee and how like Mike Turner is all upset because Russians are doing a thing and we need to be very, very serious about this. This is a, all the media went into hyperactive mode with their breaking news alerts. DC's, breaking news about a potential threat that, that they was don't know a, anything about was a, <laughs> Maybe, maybe a potential that could happen in the future, but is not immediate nor confirmable or defined in any way. That's the right. threat. Right. I mean, Russia I may do something in the future that we have completely made up wholesale. And because of that, we must send money to a proxy state with a Nazi battalion. Yes. Speaking of Nazis, Navalny was one. <laughs> Navalny um, was I one. I thought yes. that that was interesting as well. That's pretty hilarious. Yes. Yeah, so he's a um, he was a socialist. Actually, well, let me say something else about the nuke thing. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, before we go to Navalny, um, I honestly, when I first saw this notice going around on X that there was this threat and there was this briefing happening, I got excited because. I thought, oh, this might have to do with the cyber warfare that we've been getting more and more alerts about. Um, 
perhaps there was some action taken against some Chinese hacking group because we've seen some actions in that, like that over the past couple months, we've seen that happening more and more. And I thought we were going to get some word about Cybercom. Like the, my mind immediately went, <laughs> Cybercom took action and they're actually going to You were giving them Cybercom. way too much credit. <laughs> yes, I gave them way too much credit. And yeah. then I noticed that everybody was like, wait, there's no substance to this. And then little by little, tiny pieces of information came out. It's related <clears throat> to Russia. It's related to nukes. It's related to space. And then, oh, there's all this funding on the table. And I noticed that so many people instantly recognized the PSYOP that was being done to try and create the fear mongering and the excuse for giving more money to Zelensky, which in itself makes no sense. Like how does giving more money to Zelensky stop Russia from putting nukes in space? Like there's no amount of money that you could give Zelensky where he could stop, then stop Putin from doing that. So like, like it doesn't even make sense what they were psyoping people into doing. Um, but maybe it's a, maybe it's indicative of just how stupid they think everybody is. And I definitely believe that many senators and, and representatives are stupid enough to believe that giving Zelensky another hundred billion dollars would prevent Vlad from putting nukes in space. Somehow. There is a, there is a more white pilled, uh, not that you're dooming, um, no, no. There is a there is a funny little uh, white pill that I don't know if Chris Paul had said this publicly or just privately over the weekend in a conversation, uh, but I kind of liked his uh, it, he he wasn't even asserting this he was just saying, isn't it funny that this narrative coming out by Mike Turner, uh, completely front ran and sort of disarmed the Navalny narrative false flag that followed it. Because over the weekend, before the Navalny deployment, which, which we'll talk about more, with the Russian space nukes, Austin Powers deployment, it was absurd, right? It was so yeah. mimetic it, that it was, it was completely absurdist. And Chris had floated the idea that he was like, you know, this could be them just being complete idiots as we're talking about. And they really thought that was going to spin up the mandate for funding. Or it could be a disarming... Like, you know, what was interesting and maps onto his idea of this being a potential narrative disarmament is that Jake Sullivan was not happy that this broke in the manner in which it did. He gave a press conference and said that he was he was unsure what Mike Turner was talking about and he was not happy because they were supposed to have a meeting the next day to discuss threats that Russia posed and he they weren't supposed to be talking about anything publicly. And it kind of made Chris think, mm. was this narrative supposed to be much more, much more scary? And was the story not really done yet? Was the Biden administration supposed to be the ones who deployed this story? Maybe through Jake Sullivan, maybe through John Kirby, maybe, you know, through, if it's coming out of the State Department or the DOD, it might have had more normie and media friendly framing where they could use scarier words and they could, you yeah. know, it, it was very harebrained and it was very sudden. And I, I did think that there was an actual that mapped onto that idea of disarmament. And it was that Jake Sullivan was not happy that this came out. And then about 24 hours later, it's followed up by the Navalny deployment. When you look at these two deployments in concert together, it starts to look to me like Navalny, whatever went on with him, was a deep state reaction to the Russian nukes narrative going viral in all the wrong ways for them.
it's just it's just another potential reading of it that's kind of interesting that's interesting you well what it made me think on is that did the neocons get prompted to start the because that's who started it that's who broke the russia nuke thing story with right. no details whatsoever at first mm-hmm. and then they got they got little hints here and there and media gathered through sources certain things about it did the neocons in the house mike turner uh namely being the ones to deploy this initially undercut and rob the biden administration from having any sort of energy about their announcement about it and so and i and i think that kind of works because if a neocon goes and tells members of the like democrat like what democrat is going to listen to mike turner about anything right but then when the biden administration follows up and concurs with it yeah. and then tries to say no 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 mike turner is right like the yeah. Demo- the no they're not going to listen to it so i think it kind of like causes this dissonance in it where if biden administration had been the lead on it and then the neocons conferred or concurred with it the democrats would be like yeah it's about time those republicans agreed with biden on something and i don't think I, there's as I much dissonance when I- it's comes that way. I think John and I on Wednesday night had looked at some of this, uh, some of this story, and he had played a clip, a sort of viral clip out of what whatever mainstream news organization it was, and they had the woman and they had the reporter in front of the White House green screen. And I had joked after he ran the clip about her describing what this threat was, but what it wasn't, but what it could be, but what it probably wouldn't be, and how they knew for sure that it was a threat, but didn't know what it was or that it was a threat. She literally looked to me like she was trying to understand what she was reading off the teleprompter as she was saying it. And I had joked afterwards that it looked like false flag Mad Libs. Like she had been given... She had been given yeah. a dartboard and she had hit, you know, the media had hit Russia, nukes, space, and that's all they had. And they were like, all right, well, this seems like the deployment, you know, the, the way these deployments probably go is they get their 4 a.m. talking points. And this one looks like maybe it was rushed out there and it was not rushed out there in the order in which it was supposed to be. It wasn't a neat and tidy press kit, which, by the way, for anybody I know most people probably know this, but I'm not sure if they do because I had gone to school for journalism originally. There is literally such a term as a press kit, which is a a kit of information that is sent out by official parties that basically tell you how they want something to be reported on. And it's not framed as if it's um, Orwellian. They're just saying, oh, we want you to get the story accurate. So we're going to send you a press kit. I would imagine that that's how many of these State Department and DOD deployments go out. They go out in the form of a press kit. I don't think this came out in a press kit. This came out, like you said, out of the neocons, very haphazard, very unorganized, and the media ran with it before Sullivan and his team had a press kit to give to them. Interesting to look back on it and notice that. Yeah, so... You know, know, it's it's acceleration, you know, in in game theory... You force your enemy to accelerate, they end up making mistakes. And if you're playing an infinite game, it's to your advantage. This could have been one of those instances. And it if doesn't you mean watch that Mike that Turner press conference was conference with Jake Sullivan. It doesn't look it like he's sense. he doesn't he doesn't seem to be pretending to be annoyed at the manner in which this came out. He seems yeah. genuinely he seems genuinely on the back foot. And it it reads almost like the press in attendance 
they're trying to tee Sullivan up for a deployment that they think is coming out of the deep state. The state. Yeah, he's going to have some specific. He's going to have some new intel. Yep. Russia has a rocket on the pad right now, and they have five right. satellites containing nukes. Yep, narrative engage orbit. step two. That's what they're trying to set yep. him up. And little yep. do they know, this was not supposed to be deployed in this timing or in this way. So it had already been disarmed. So I think it was Chris that had said that to me. So credit to him for that disarmament theory. Ghost might have said it as well. But it's a, it's definitely paints it. It paints it in a different manner. And it also leads us into... Looking at, you know, no matter how you want to look at the Navalny deployment, it certainly looks desperate. It looks like whoever did this, we do not think it was Vladimir Putin, in case anybody couldn't read through the sarcasm. Uh, it looks like a desperate move in and of itself, but it looks extra desperate coming on the heels of what was absolutely a failed narrative deployment in the with the Russian space nukes. Well, on Navalny, um, it, it makes no sense that Putin would suddenly decide he's going to kill Navalny. It makes, it makes, there's no, there's, there's no scenario that makes sense where now would be the time to kill Navalny. He's one, Putin could have killed him a long, long time ago. Years ago, he could have assassinated him and he didn't. Um, Navalny's been in, um, I don't think it actually is Siberia. It's like this Arctic circle, Arctic circle, um, I looked up the Russian state that it is, but it's like a half million people live in this area. It's too, um, it's, it's, it's towards, uh, Siberia. Um, but it's this like Arctic circle prison camp and he's been there for over three years. Um, it is, it just doesn't make any sense. It could make sense that Navalny just died because hell he's at a camp in the winter and it's probably not a great place to be. I wouldn't want to be there. Um, Russian 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 prison establishments are not well known <laughs> for their safety and health regulations and healthcare. Um yeah. but it just there's no I can't imagine a scenario where it makes sense that right now is the time for him to be taken out or why even take him out? He's in prison already. What's the purpose of taking him out? Um it, it makes no sense. What does make sense? The way, like you, it, like you always got to ask, where are the incentives? Who benefits? Who benefits from Navalny suddenly dying? Well, anti-Putin zealots and uh, establishment types in Europe and in America benefit from Navalny being assassinated right now because at this moment, Putin is and has been winning the narrative war, and his high watermark in that war in that winning. Uh, came just last week with Tucker interviewing him and allowing him to actually speak without interrupting him over and over again and filtering out everything he said. So Putin, it's like his, the moment to do some sort of thing that casts Putin in a bad light would be right after the Tucker interview. And guess what? A bad thing supposedly was done by Putin. Um, also, Russia just had a pretty big victory in Ukraine. Um, yeah. I forget the name of the town. It starts with an A, I think. Uh, Avika, um, I think. So, something like that. Uh, so I just think that, um, you know, just logically, it makes no sense. Like, you can't come up with a reason why Navalny should be taken out. This is the other thing about Navalny. Um, he's a radical socialist 
who is sponsored by all of the big elite globalist organizations like Amnesty Now and uh, all of these different groups. He's um, he's associated with all of these people who are known, well-known globalist and radical socialist. And Navalny is their guy who was trying to do some sort of color revolution in Russia. It's never gotten off the ground. He's always been this color revolution type opponent within Russia. And his own, to, to your point, Kyle, his own, I thought this was hilarious because I've been kind of put, there's been a lot that's happened recently that has teed me up for another righteous Russia. Oh, except sure. I can't, I keep not being able to write it because it gets more and more crazy every day, right? <laughs> but during my, during my travels, I like to look at media framing, obviously, uh, because it's a narrative war and that's how we kind of view things. But I thought that the framing of Navalny by them was hilarious. So I often use Wikipedia, not as a, necessarily a resource for actual information, but as a resource for how the official establishment narrative yeah. views X figure, right? So look yeah. at the intro sentence or listen to the intro sentence of how the establishment defines Navalny and think about it through the lens of everything we know and the inversion principle. Quote, Navalny was a Russian opposition coordination council member, the leader of the Russia of the Future Party, and the founder of the Anti-Corruption Foundation. He is known as a Russian freedom fighter who stands against dictatorial mandates, right? Yep. So it's like all the buzzwords that the establishment uses when they're talking about defending our democracy and, you know, all the other stuff, right? They're just talking about communism and they frame Navalny basically in the same way Vladimir Putin would frame him. <laughs> he would just say, like, the enemy basically says this guy is a freedom fighter, Russian traitor within the system, and he runs foundations and he gets foreign funding and he's accused of fomenting color revolution, as you said. He's been officially legally charged with Nazism, with fomenting Nazi ideology in Russia. So it also takes the... Uh, the purge of Nazism, the uh, denazification efforts of Vladimir Putin uh, in a whole other direction. But yeah. yeah, look, Wikipedia. I just thought it was funny framing. Wikipedia is um, a great starting place for digging on anybody and anything. Not because yeah. everything on there is factual and not because it's curated to give you the clearest picture, but because at least it has sources and it's is it, you can see the naked influence of these lefty editors who are trying to hide the truth. Like I go to Wikipedia as a starting place to get the links to where they want to direct me to go. And you can almost always see through uh, what it is they're trying to, how they're trying to paint this person. And with Navalny, I went to Wikipedia also, and I looked at all of these groups that he started and um, that Russia has dismantled and yep. guess what happened? Like there's one of them, like the, the free Russia, the future party or whatever. Yeah. Russia, Russia, the after, future. Yeah. After he uh, got arrested, it was dissolved and um, in Russia. And then the globalist reorganized it as a global institution. <laughs> and no, so now it has all this UN funding and like of EU course. oligarchs are on it. And um, it's all, it's all these influence. We've seen this. We know this. We know how you know, these we, people work. 
So we use to, to that point, you know, we use sometimes I mean, I use the I use the term convergence a lot when it comes to the narrative warfare aspect of things. And I, I've often said that my favorite bits of convergence are when our narratives, when I say our, I mean people trying to discover the truth in this community, converge with the establishment's narrative deployments. In the Navalny situation, when you're talking about these organizations and these foundations, it's always foundations, right? One of yep. the great gifts that the original Q drops gave to a lot of us, a lot of Anons, was just looking at foundations totally differently, whether that's the Clinton Foundation or everything else. There are more vehicles for corruption, vehicles for money laundering, and you know, all of us kind of know to look at these things with some side eye. What's so funny about Navalny's organizations, when you talk about the globalist and UN funding to these organizations, Vladimir Putin doesn't have to spin or change the narrative deployments of the globalist establishment at all. He basically fully agrees with their framing of Navalny. Yeah. So the globalists say Navalny is a globalist, socialist, freedom fighter looking to foment revolution within Russia. And Putin yes. just says, I 100% agree with you. He is a Nazi terrorist. Yep. Traitor to the country. And we're going to put him in a Siberian prison. It's, who, it's amazing. Who, look at the, this is the other tell. The big tell about Navalny, like say you don't want to do any research at all. You just want to like <laughs> skate the surface of news reports to figure out who Navalny is. This is a good one to do that on where you don't actually need to do deep research whatsoever because you can look at all of the media and politicians aligning That's to it. try to convince you to hero worship Navalny. And when you see that, when you see that hero worship deployment of this person, you know it's a psyop. Yeah. It's a persuasion deployment to try and get you to like someone because for whatever reason they say about him. It's like the 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 perfect photo ops of him, the glowing reviews of his wife and praise for her. Within a day, like, it's normal to do a media a tour about your dead husband, right? With yes. Kamala Harris. Man, yes. I, I, if you will indulge me. I can't, I can't not share this. It's, it's a righteous Russia thing. Sure. But it teed me up if you want to share my screen here. Um, so just for context, I had written this in 2022, January 2022. This was part two. It was Rise of the New Czar. It was my attempt to, again, not give people the actuals of Vladimir Putin, but just to question the narratives about him. And uh, this section is incredible when you apply... Uh, it's a, it's it's just incredible to reread when you apply the rerun framing of things. Uh, so I said, do you remember your first experience with anti-Putin propaganda? I remember mine. It was a May 11, 2014 episode of Late Chef Extraordinaire Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, wherein the titular host opens the CNN-produced episode by referring to Putin's presidency as autocratic, vengeful, and oblivious to even a thin veneer of democracy. He then goes on to admit that despite this objective wisdom, his great Western perspective grants him, quote, Russia loves Putin, likening his standing with his own people to that of Rudy Giuliani to New Yorkers in the 1990s. <laughs> this is how the propaganda arm framed Putin. Then Bourdain's friend, a Russian producer named Zamir Gada, even hits the nail directly on the Mockingbird's head when he remarks, quote, Putin strikes me as a businessman, a businessman with an ego like Donald Trump, but shorter. This is 2014. There's some there's some tantalizing Trump morsels in here that lets you know 
that what, what Kyle talks about, about Trump and the band, and what a lot of us believe has been going on for a long time, the deep state knew that Trump was coming after them before he announced his candidacy because they are already poisoning the well by likening him to Putin. And as it relates to Navalny, this is why I wanted to bring this up. So I said, the narrative, proudly and cleanly, ready for both mainstream and pop culture dissemination just a year before Trump declared his candidacy. The assertions carried extra weight given that Boris Nemtsov, an opposition leader and public opponent of Vladimir Putin, is featured prominently in the episode only to be assassinated nine months after its airing. The narrative of Putin as a killer was put forth confidently by a major Western cultural leader, one of its most watched outlets, and seemingly confirmed. So yep. what happened here in 2014, I remember sitting on my couch watching this because I liked Bourdain's show. And Bourdain sits down with Boris Nemtsov, the Russian, the, the then Navalny, who's mm -hmm. fomenting this color revolution within Russia. And he literally was, he was announcing that he was, he was leading protests in the streets of Moscow. He was getting all these student bodies, these radicalized communist Russian student bodies to go out against Putin. He was receiving Western funding. He was meeting with MI6 operatives, just like Navalny's aides allegedly have been doing as, as recently as 2023. And then CNN, they interview him. They talk about how he fears for his life. He ends up poisoned a few months later, right before the Russian elections, where Putin is reelected. And it's the exact same narrative. So when we talk about the Chris Paul reruns, it's like looking at this Navalny thing. And it was so funny because I had kind of forgotten about the Boris Nemtsov thing that I've been researching at the time. And I'm like, why does this feel so familiar? I swear this already happened. Like for a minute, I was like, didn't Navalny already die? Didn't the media already do this entire thing? Turns out it was a different Russian yep. dissident and Nazi sympathizer communist with an N last name that was that was uh, that they were promoting as a freedom fighter. So yeah. it kind of gives um, you a weird sense of confidence after that happens. Once you're no longer once you uh once you uh fail at an attempt to spark a color color revolution or gain some significant ground in a foreign country on behalf of the CIA and you become um, a loose end, a liability. The only thing left for them to do with you is to off you at an opportune time. Yep. Right. I mean, like, like that's why I said, if you're meeting with the CIA and MI6, <laughs> you're about to be at some point when it is convenient for them, you may think that you are their asset, but yeah. you're going to die as soon as yeah. they think it is narratively beneficial. So you think when Boris Nemtsov was sitting down for interviews with Bourdain on CNN, he's thinking the establishment's going to back me and I'm going to be the new leader of Russia. No, no, no. They were boosting his narrative power as a symbol so that they could turn him into a martyr and use that as anti-Putin and anti-Trump, ironically enough, propaganda. And keep in mind, at this time, the reason that they were spinning up these narratives about Putin at the time in 2014... Crimea, the Maidan coup, CanCon was in chat, brought up the Maidan coup, the Orange Revolution, and Putin went in there, and Putin's grand shot across the bow to the globalist establishment was the seizing of Crimea. He took Crimea, and he never gave it back. And now he's built a nice yep. little dandy land bridge right over to it. 
Um, all right, let's. Uh, bef- well, I'm going to say something spicy before we go on to our next, our last ad and our our last topics. Uh, the Navalny deployment in our media and the hero worship of him by both sides and media on both sides reminds me of the exact same type of deployment. It's the exact same treatment that a certain person who has an extradition hearing coming up this week got and continues to get. And that would be Julian Assange. And there's little, little to no difference between the way media and politicians treat Assange and the way they're treating Navalny right now. And you should all recognize that as a persuasion deployment that may not be the most honest. So now I'm going to run Many away. such cases. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so, all right. Uh, last advertiser is us at Badlands. In the fast paced nice in today's, well, yeah, in today's fast paced world, peace of mind is priceless. That's where Badlands Media steps in. Preparing for life's uncertainties is about being ready for anything right where you are. Welcome to the Badlands Media shop. We've partnered with Patriot Companies, offering products that empower you to prepare for any eventuality comfortably from your home. The Badlands shop has everything you need to secure your peace of mind. Browse the virtual aisles, prepare your family for the year ahead with products you can trust from companies that share your values. Whether it's growing your own food or prepping for long-term storage, protecting your family or stocking up on emergency supplies, we've got you covered. Get prepared. Visit Badlands Media Shop at badlandsmedia.tv slash shop today. Every purchase supports a freedom-loving business as well as Badlands Media. So go to badlandsmedia.tv slash shop. And thank you for your continued support. Okay. Yeah, Assange has a... um, has his last supposedly it's his last extradition hearing extradition hearing this week and uh we'll see if he does get extradited i hope that he does and so does trump that's what trump wants trump yeah. says that he wants him to go through the system and see what happens quote unquote so he'll let the system timing. handle it interesting timing lots of convergences speaking of convergences mm-hmm. i'm sure all of us have noticed just on a total macro sense I'm sure all of us have noticed that, uh, especially the Eye of the Storm show has been great to watch recently about the Q drops, because man, a lot of narratives from circa 2016 to 2018 coming back around in big ways, including familiar names. You know, Assange isn't the only one. We've got we've got John Podesta of all people just back in a really really um, prominent position in the collective mind again we've got some of these figures coming back around so interesting interesting days ahead i think agreed um and so speaking of that these stories coming back around from like five or so years ago um you guys are probably aware it was talked about on devolution power hour probably a good thing i wasn't on that power hour because i was in chat getting pretty heated um (laughs) I did enjoy at it. Us or at chat? <laughs> no, I was just, I was like, I was just getting ticked off that I wasn't on that episode oh, yeah, because yeah. it was like every topic on it was like my <laughs> wheelhouse. Um, yeah. But I was also incensed over this Matt Taibbi uh, right. Schellenberger thing where they've recycled old news as if it was new and then teased everybody that they had some new source. Which turned out to be an old source 
and they paywalled their breaking news. And then to make matters worse, when they were called out on it, they blocked people who called them out on it, including the very journalist who originally broke the story back five years ago. Um, so it just really left a bad taste in my mouth. And it sucks because Taibbi and Schellenberger have done great work in the past year. I think they've been really important in the narrative war. But this was a bad move. Um, and so what I wanted to talk about with this segment is I don't want to I don't want to make this a bash Taibbi and Schellenberger segment. But we did I want to talk on Wednesday. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, I want to talk about the value. Well, I want to talk about the a balancing act that I think we have to do. Um, because it occurred to me that these reruns uh, are necessary. The reruns of of stories, you know, we've we've gotten a lot of reruns with uh, Joe Biden and the Biden crime family stories that have come around, um, where House Republicans have recycled stuff that we already knew, stuff from the from the uh, from the Biden laptop um, coming out as if it's new, um, and then we had um, we we've had so many stories like this one where like from Spygate that we already knew this stuff. Um, and Chris Paul has called them reruns. I think that's apt. I think that they are reruns and people need reruns um, because one, people need to be reminded because we're mental misers and we don't retain information that well, uh, but also because a lot of people weren't paying attention. So I think we have to balance the need for reruns against our own frustrations with people having not paid attention during the time at which it was breaking news. And then we also have to balance it with their um, we have to be empathetic towards that need for that, the need for them to to get this information for the first time. And the Schellenberger Taibbi thing works really well for this because before they started blocking people and putting it behind a paywall, but at the very beginning of it, as they were advertising their breaking news, I, th I would have believed them honestly if they had said that it was breaking news to them, if they had just said, we didn't know this had been reported on before, we'd never heard it before. We earnestly thought it was new information from a new source. I think that would have been believable and a lot of people would have believed them. And that's and at because, least would have given some plausible deniability, even if people didn't right. believe them fully. And, and I think it's because we recognize that people are siloed in their own streams of information, including us, we get siloed in our own streams of information. I think that that's true of everybody across the political spectrum. We, we have our favorites and we have our interest and, um, may not be aware of certain things. And so, you know, for me, Spygate is one of the things that brought me into the, I was already interested in politics, but Spygate, is what got me like really, really activated back in 2018, 2019, because I wasn't this, I, I support, I liked Trump's positions, but I didn't trust any politician and Trump earned my trust between 2017 and 2018. And I started liking him more and more. I didn't fully understand him, but I started liking him and realizing he kept his promises. And there was this Spygate thing going on that I found intensely intriguing. And it got me to dig and dig and dig and pay more and more attention to Trump. And that's where I found out about not only was Trump promising swamp draining, 
swamp draining was happening. And which gave was a white pill to me. And then I started digging in, I was digging in the spy gate and I started finding out about Trump being an, an asset and about all the sting operations Trump had been a part of and working with Rudy. And I started digging into all the spy gate players and I found some that were really, really bad. And I found some that were good, but were portrayed as being bad. And that's how I learned about kayfabe. And I started, I started reading all the work by all these different Spygate sleuths and researchers on Twitter and uh, reading Brian Cates and Epoch Times and uh, um, Climate Audit and all of these people um, that are just great researchers. And it gave me this, it, 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 I'm really thankful for it. But I realize I'm cognizant of the fact that that was my experience. And that is not an experience that is common amongst most people. Most people have their own interests in certain things. Like um, one example I like to use, and he may not even know this, but like Pepe Lives Matter is really, really interested in cultural stuff, kind of like BB is. And like that stuff doesn't interest me that much. Yeah. Um, BB and I have some cross, we have enough crossover interest that we, we jive with each other on, on this stuff, but, um, on the, in general, in the great awakening, but like, I get excited about documents and stuff and like Pepe lives matter does like, I'll have an exchange with him and he's not nearly as excited as I am, but then right. he'll, the next moment he'll get excited about something in the culture war realm. And I'm just like, I don't even, I don't even care about this. I didn't like, even are know you excited what this was, about it. Right. <laughs> I don't even know who these people are. Um, but neither one of us are right or wrong or higher than the other. It's just what activates our interest. And I have empathy for that. And I have appreciation for it, that it takes all types. And with, with Spygate, I don't expect people to know the nitty gritty of it. Um, any more than I think Pepe Lives Matter or BB expects me to know who all these celebrities are or what this cult, what this stuff means in the cultural war. Um, I just don't have a reference for it. So I think reruns are necessary in order to get people that are ignorant or were apathetic of a certain uh, topic to try and get their attention and inform them on certain things and getting people interested in the CIA's role in Spygate is and, and, and the five eyes role in Spygate is something I think we can all agree is a very good thing. Um, but there is this aspect of it that kind of gets icky where it's the paywall aspect of it. It's the breaking news, emoji, emoji, exclusive aspect of it. It's the grifty aspect. It's the gatekeeping aspect of it. Doubling down on it, like you said, is a big deal when you double and then, down on yeah. the fact. And then when you get you called out doubling down it. on it, it's, yeah. it's gross and it's very frustrating. Um, but what I wanted to point out about it is that I think it's necessary for us who that have this information and are aware of these things. Um, I point out to BB, if it was one-on-one, -on -one, I think all of us go into a red pill mode where we're like, um, like, Oh, you don't know about this thing. Let me inform you of it. And right. we don't get judgmental give you some about more context. It. Yeah. We, we all like, do that. We all do that with each other in this community. We do, but it, but for some reason, when we get, when it gets into the uh, social media area, we start, um, did I say five guys? Some of y'all are laughing in the chat. I may have said five guys and I meant five, five guys. Eyes. <laughs> five guys, um, burgers and fries. Um, 
I would totally believe that I said five guys instead of five guys. I don't know. <laughs> um, hungry. But I think that we have to develop this that same empathy that we would have when we're one on one with someone and we want to inform them of a thing that isn't new information to us. We have to be empathetic and understanding that it might be new information to them. And I think that's 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 where we have to be on it if we want this great awakening to succeed in a, in a greater to a greater extent. I, I've for a while now I've been thinking I've been a little bit off this idea that um, like there's all, there's a, this explanation that comes up a lot where it's like, oh, we're just this is just about waking the people up. Um, like whatever event happens, it's like it's all about waking people up. And it's like we use that that line to explain any event. And I think we use it too flippantly um, mm-hmm. because I think that the amount of people that are awake right now, I think we're pretty close to as many as we're going to get. Yeah. I think the rest of the people, are, it's, it's just all about in this, casually. In this phase or with this type of information war. Yeah, I think we've woken up as many li- lions as one way to say it. I think we've woken up about as many lions as we're going to wake up. Probably. I, I think that we're about there. The rest of it is just getting people to turn out and vote. It's getting people to uh, improve their discernment. It's undoing misinformation, undoing lies. Um, and I think the Great Awakening has has more. I don't want to say it's like succeeded, like it's like like with some finality. It's continuing, but I think that we've uh, we've woken up as many people as about as many people as we're going to be able to wake up and get them active daily in it. I don't think there's that many more active in the info war people that haven't already woken up by something. Uh, So that leaves the people that are more casual about it and our peripheral learners, as I've called them. And those people need reruns because they've seen, you know, if you think if you put in the context of the opposite side with the MSM, they do reruns all day long telling people how bad Trump is and that he was working with Putin to steal the 2016 election. They right. constantly rerun that. Um, if programming so anyway, requires reruns, then deprogramming might require reruns. Exactly. And, yeah. And I, I think, you know, to your point about we've awakened as many people as we're going to, and, you know, I just want to, uh, my sort of spin on that is I sort of agree with you, but I don't think, I, I often think about the framing um, of, one of my favorite sayings in the Q drops is frame and support. You know, you're, you're yep. going to be the frame and support. Um, that's, that's something I apply to Anons, the truth community, uh, you know, cognitive intentionality, all the sort of stuff we talk about with direct path reasoning. You, you just use the term lions. I know that G money talks about that a lot. You know, he's looking for lions. He's not looking for sheep. That's why he doesn't care. You know, if he insults you or something like that, but I, I agree with that. And I think that, We've awakened as many lions, to your point, as we're going to awake. But that doesn't mean that the awakening is over or, in my opinion, has even reached an inflection point. I think that the awakening process starts with the lions. And that's essential because as these reruns and other events to come, inflection points to come via very public events whether those are political events, international events, narrative events, actual events, uh, when those will start to wake up a lot of sheep, quote unquote, a lot of normies who require this, these reruns, people who are not going to be, to your point, 
on a daily active discernment sort of mindset, these are the sorts of people that other things are going to wake up. We're not going to wake those people up. And I do think it's actually healthy and it's not a black pill to start to reframe our purpose in this whole community and even in your own families and friends group. Rather than be thinking that you're going to wake everybody up, I think starting to transition that mindset into what does it mean to be the frame and support? Does it mean yeah. trying to beat people over the head with things that you've tried all these different pathways to awakening them and it hasn't worked? Maybe you're maybe you're not going to wake that person up, right? But something out there is going to. And then yeah. they're going to remember that it was you who tried to plant these seeds originally and you probably you probably successfully did plant those seeds even if you sometimes feel like you didn't because they haven't awakened. You're like, "Well, I tried to plant these seeds to wake you up. It didn't seem to work." Then this other thing woke you up. That's often the way the awakening process works for people who are not lions, for people who are not direct path. And I do think that the brilliance, I've kind of been working on this concept for a long time that I haven't been able to really distill, but it goes along with what you're saying with lions and sheep. It's it's the idea that the QOP was successful, past tense. It's over, it was successful. That doesn't mean the awakening is over. The QOP right. was not meant to trigger a worldwide awakening. It was meant to wake up the most direct path, cognitively intentional lions that needed to be woken up first so that we could be the frame and support for when the public narrative, for when public actuals do accelerate that awakening, kind of create that cascade. And then one point I'd make on people like Schellenberger and Taibbi and everything, and I agree with you of not making another bash session, like there's, it's to separate the reason we get so frustrated that that kind of stuff at that kind of gatekeeping the term you used we care in this community about waking people up and we care about bringing them to the point that we feel we're at even though we all acknowledge that we're not at the end right you're never at the end of an awakening process it's an ongoing process and i think the reason people like us people like john get so frustrated when they see people doing this kind of gatekeeping is that if you are a, a sheep or a normie and you wake up via these kind of gatekeepers, the first source that wakes you up tends to sort of wield disproportionate control over your attention from that point forward, right? It's, yeah. it's you, you trust that awakening source. You mentioned Brian Cates. You mentioned, you know, for a lot of people, it was John's research. For some people, it was yours. For, for us, it was different people, right? We all have those things yeah. that wake it up. For a lot of people, it was Donald Trump himself, which I think is a yeah. good vector of awakening. But when you get these gatekeepers who are motivated by paywalling their content, you know, blocking people who are calling them out for ripping off other people's research, we all understand that other people have written about these things before. And when we find out about these people, we credit them, right? That's what you're right. supposed to do. You're supposed to all be building toward a shared understanding. And I think that the reason that we get frustrated when we see these gatekeepers being successful at, we can separate that it is a good thing that some people were, were awakened in 2024 by these stories, by these reruns that we saw in 2020 and before, while also completely condemning the gatekeepers doing the awakening, because if people keep following them, they're going to remain in this little silo of paywalled gatekeepers. It's a new silo. Four-year-old yeah. information, eight-year-old information 
that they're going to keep passing off as them being the arbiters. They're going to tell you that the only way to get the information from them is to give them money. And for any of the minority crowd that talks about grifting or whatever, when people donate, you know, to shows like this or to Substacks and citizen journalists, uh, we do not pay gate anything. Right. And that's Nothing. that's why people like us get so frustrated when they see people doing it is because we do care about those awakening minds and we don't want to see them siloed into, ooh, to get the truth, I need to access this premium truth content and go through these premium truth filters to access information that other people have been writing about for free for six to eight years, right? So yeah, it just adds some context to that. Yeah, going from one silo to the next, and that's, you know, I have... I really do have a lot of empathy for the audience who read Taibbi and Schellenberger recently and for the first time learned about Intel agency's involvement in the origins of Spygate. Because I ha- I really I'm I can I think it's pretty understandable that they may have never heard that before ever. Because there's a huge portion of the media who would never tell them such a thing. They, you know, it was a deployment for them about Trump and Russia being bad and the FBI was going to get Trump and DOJ was going to get Trump. But girl, Bill Barr stepped in the way and protected Trump like they have this whole false narrative about what Spygate was. And it's been very well established in their silo. It's been built upon over and over again every day for over half a decade. Going on a decade almost now, like. Starting in 2016, they started building, well, publicly, they started deploying this thing. And yeah. it was originally meant for other people, and it got applied to Trump. But they, this false reality has been built, and they've been placed into that matrix of falsehoods since 2016. And that audience regarded Taibbi especially as being one of the better journalists on the left. And then they... They get to now where Taibi has broken free of that 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 false that matrix of falsehoods, and he's acting like this is new reporting. But I have empathy for his audience that they really might have heard this for the first time, and that's that shows the value of the reruns. And like we need to yeah. appreciate that. You're right; it's the behavior and the gatekeeping that is really frustrating for us. Yeah, they're separate. I do th- people waking I, up are yeah, separate it's two different, from two different the topics, gatekeeping yeah. type of ideas, right? Which, and I yeah. saw somebody posted in the chat. I agree with the quote. Somebody had said, you know, Dan Bongino was talking about this, and he was kind of criticizing yeah. people like us, you know, indirectly. And in, in fairness, he was criticizing people, saying, you know, it's not about who gets credit. There was a Reagan quote somebody put in here, um, and and I understand that, and that's why I think it's good to add context of saying. People aren't frustrated in the truth community that they're not getting credit. I mean, yes, people can be individually frustrated by that. We all get frustrated when people start passing off. It's happened to me. You know, yeah. I'm read, I'm I'm writing the Russia series, and then somebody else starts reposting the ideas rephrased. You know, six months later, and but then somebody was before me, right? So those those little individual annoyances happened happen. The difference is, and where I disagree with Bongino and why it is worth talking about gatekeeping, is because it is quite literal gatekeeping. We're not mad about who is getting credit and who is not getting credit. We're annoyed that people think this new source of information is the original source of the the information, and that the only way to access that information is to hand their money over 
to these people who are giving them that information and that anybody who tries to break that illusion is told, you know, Bongino gives his content out for free and I respect it and I respect what he does. That's not what these people are doing. They're, get, they're putting right. their content behind a paywall and they're pretending that they're the ones who came up with it and it is well worth criticizing that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And in, in, this, in this specific instance, the source that Schellenberger and Taibbi had is the same source that Lee Smith had five years ago. Yeah. So shout and out get, to Lee and Smith. wrote and wrote the same story. So yeah. if they wrote a new article telling the same story that Lee Smith's told, that's open source information now from multiple open source information sources, like or that's not that's not the right way to say it, but from multiple places you can get this this open source information. If they just wrote a new story, a new Substack on it, then fair play, like fair. That's fine. That information's out there. It's been reported many many places. Totally cool. The difference is when you claim you have a new source that's exclusive to you, and it turns out to be the same source from five years ago that isn't exclusive to anybody. That somebody reported on for free. Yeah. That's, so that's the difference. There are, there are nuances the to these things. And again, people are saying, people in the chat, we agree with you. The whole point here is to say that yeah. uh, it is good. It is a net positive that that new people have been exposed, that a, that a large number of new people have been exposed to this information. That is obviously a good thing. But and this, you can still criticize you can still criticize the manner in which this information was handled. And, uh, and, you know, because it could lead to future damages if people, we've seen this kind of gatekeeping a lot on a, on a bigger level where we criticize, you know, a Ron DeSantis or, you know, a Nikki Haley for riding the waves of MAGAism. And then, yeah, they, they awaken some people by repeating MAGA refrains. But if people then start following these Pied Pipers and, and looking at them as these arbiters, uh, they could be led down some you know, some, some dishonest rabbit holes. And that's not the same thing that's going on here, but it's certainly different than somebody putting something out and saying, oh, I didn't realize this had been reported before. It's saying, we are the arbiters of this information. We're the ones yeah. who discovered it. If you want to find out, you know, it reminds me of people that say, hey, I figured out everything that's going on in Arizona. If you only buy my book in six months, you'll get all the, <laughs> you'll get all the secrets, right? Oh yeah. I remember that from like a year ago. Yeah. What happened to that? What happened to that? What happened to that? Hmm. Um, so you 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 gave us a segue to our next topic because you mentioned something that particularly bothers me, and it's something that I've is part of the origin story of this program. Defected is people going from one matrix of falsehoods into another. People going from one silo of information to another silo. Um, we want to avoid that by defecting from those silos, defecting from those matrix matrices and getting out of the narrative war as much as we can it's very difficult and we're all going to struggle with it including your host here we don't we're not always able to do it um but we want to try to and develop that skill set so that we can be in it and out of it in it and out of it and get perspective and get a better understanding of where things are flowing and get a better discernment ultimately of what's true and what's false and who's trying to manipulate us etc um, so you teed me up with that seg that segue to go to our next topic, which has to do with invisible justice. But before we do, I just want to say something that is it's difficult to communicate. 
Um, but it comes up over and over again because there's so much plagiarism in the media space. And um, it's, it's difficult to communicate this unless you engage in some sort of um, similar activity and you've experienced it yourself. Um, so if you're a writer or you're a, an artist in some way, you create something from your own intellect and creativity, whatever it is. Um, when someone steals that from you and rips you off, it's, you have a, it hits you differently when you see, see that happening to you. And then when you see it happen to others, and that's some of what we've experienced this week and we've experienced it many times. And it's something I didn't, I didn't appreciate that much before I started making content online. Um, just as a consumer of content, I, I would notice when people got ripped off, I'd be like, oh, so-and-so reported on that first or so-and-so wrote an article about that first and then somebody else followed behind. Um, but I didn't appreciate just how much it went on in this space. And right. something that we that are um, at Badlands, our host, and other, other journalists um, and content creators and artists realize as you get into this space, um, you start to realize how much content theft there is. Um, and there's, there's many types of it. Um, for instance, there, there's accounts that are bots that, that rip off every post I make on Telegram. They copy paste every single post I make. And then in between they'll do that and they do it to me and they do it to a few other accounts and they're bots. They're not real people. They're bots that are set up and programmed to copy my stuff. And then every fourth or fifth post is a link to buy um, XRP from their wallet or whatever. Yep. <laughs> like, and that's why the bots exist. You, folks, FYI. The bots exist. <laughs> yeah. The bots exist in order to make money for whoever programmed them. And there's, there's stuff like that on, on X. There's stuff like that on other social media accounts. And um, I'm not the only one. I'm not unique about this at all. There's, I'm sure probably everybody at Badlands and everybody that you follow who has an account with over like 20,000 followers has five or more bots that are assigned to copy paste everything they post and then advertise somebody they have an affiliation with in order to make money off of that account. It's, um, it's so incredibly common and it's frustrating because you, you're, there's nothing you can really do about it. And then there are these other people who are real individuals who steal content and then advertise it as their own original information, their own original content. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do about that. Uh, and it sucks because they trade. Because if you do complain about it, you get called, uh, you get, you get called, um, you know, selfish and whatever, which is kind of hilarious in a community yeah. that cares, that cares about, uh, you know, originality and truth. You know, if somebody steals yeah. something from you and then you have the nerve to call them out, you're called a divider and you're being divisive and you should just right. shut up and take it, right? So th the reason I want to bring this up in this context is just just to say that, like, there's we <clears throat> want the information to be out there. We want the information to be out there for free. And we want it to be spread far and wide. And I don't care that much if people post the same takes as me and generally agree on something like it's not really about agreement or having the same take 
It's when somebody literally copy paste what you created yourself and presents it as their own, especially if they throw a bunch of emojis with it and say exclusive, you know, et cetera. It's you're being taken advantage of and you, and you would feel that way in other contexts, whether it was your art or your music or if you wrote a book and somebody changed the title of the book, but just reproduced your book and sold it as their own original fiction book or whatever, um, yeah. you would feel you would feel like you were being ripped off and plagiarized and it was wrong, right? And same thing with like if somebody uh, stole your scientific theory or stole your methodology that you created for doing a certain experiment or stole your method for um, um, doing some sort of engineering. Uh, like all of this stuff, like when you take it, like it's that theft is theft is theft. And for some reason in this space, in the media space, it's way easier to get a, get away with it. And it's, um, when you point it out, you end up catching a lot of flack and not the yeah. account that's actually doing the, the theft. So the reason I wanted to say all this is because, um, I'm aware that some of us that are in this media space come come across as being uniquely irritated by this sort of behavior and i'm saying yes we are because yeah. we experience it way more often than we point it out um on any given day i can find you a half dozen examples of my work being reproduced as if it was someone else's but it's word for word my own work that I spent hours researching or that is the culmination of hours of research across many months, even years. And someone else is putting it up for sale or someone else is using it to get attention in order to advertise something else that they have for sale. And they're presenting it as their own. And that, and I know that if that happens to me, it happens to other accounts that are just as, small as mine and other accounts that are way bigger more often and it's and it's wrong and we're uniquely aware of it because we exist in this space every day all day um yeah. so i don't really need anything from you guys i'm just saying like that's well, where we're coming from that's yeah. like that's where we're coming from on this is that's why we get irritated about it um and uh yeah I, and i think that if you got if like if you if you put yourself in whatever profession or passion you have, um, if you imagine how somebody could steal that from you, like you would, you would be able to like empathize with where we're coming from and why we get irritated about this stuff and why um, we mention it here and there. We try not to make it a, a like a, a regular thing for us to mention, but um, when it goes viral and it's pay gated it, like that, it's hard it's, to ignore. It, yeah, it, it really sucks. So that's, that's another reason why this, this past week, the way like Taibi and Schellenberger went about this, um, really rubs me the wrong way and rubs others the wrong way. And I wanted to mention too, I saw John in the chat and he brought up a good point. I don't know if he intended this, but you know, John's talking about, uh, somebody putting on cowboy boots and ripping off all of his research oh, yeah. and passing it off as their own. And there are people um, that talk about, oh, as long as we're all on the same team. Well, the key word that I want to highlight, if you take any personality out of it, take any selfish, 
Um, even if even if righteous indignation at somebody stealing your work and, you know, maybe you guys watching the show, you don't really give a shit that somebody steals from from a person at Badlands or a personality or a researcher that you like, a citizen journalist that you like. You don't really care because it doesn't really affect you and you think it's petty to talk about. The the other side of things with Cowboy Boot, Cowboy Boot Man and many like him is that they will take work from somebody like John. They will repurpose it as their own. And the key word I want to use is intention. The intention is not just to disperse the truth to a wider audience. So this is where I'll slap, on, slap down Dan Bongino a little bit. I think what he said had was well meant and mostly well taken. But there are people that repurpose citizen journalism so that they can lead people down rabbit holes that are not accurate. They specifically do it to not just monetize their content and steal other people's intellectual property and ideas in order to make money off of it. They also do it to misrepresent and corrupt those original ideas. And yes. to be frank, I said this about a certain military figure a few weeks ago, and I'm not accusing any specific person of anything. But whether it comes to Taibi and Schellenberger, you know, Cowboy, Bo Cowboy Bootman, on down the line, we, you guys watching shows, you guys engaging in the info war, we who are making content and doing research and putting it out there, do not owe benefit of doubt to anybody. So just because the information is good information to have out there does not mean anybody owes benefit of the uh, benefit of doubt to the intention behind the sharing of that information. And where there's smoke, there's fire. When you see people paygating things, when you see people changing, Taibi and Schellenberger didn't do this part of things, they just paygated it. But when you look at people taking the devolution theory and corrupting what the research actually says and assigning opinions to people that they don't actually hold, that is absolutely stuff that is worth calling out because it will actually do damage to the people that those the initial bits of truth like bait wake people up but then they they bring them down these rabbit holes that bring them into all sorts of negative territory they get them to doom out they get them to black pill they come to faulty yeah. conclusions based on the original research so there's all sorts of ways besides just you know sour grapes that of, of why people complain about people misrepresenting research out there because there's some real bad uh there's some bad effects negative effects that can that can occur from what these people do yeah all right we'll get off our soapbox now just felt compelled to uh to give that apology a, a bit for why we come across we the way we do on some of these things um all right last segment is the uh as as bb said the invisible justice thing and as i explained to bb um mcgonagall charles mcgonagall was sentenced in the dc case last week um and there was great news with this because it was expected that he would be sentenced to serve his DC case sentence with his SDNY sentence of 50 months. And it was going to be served concurrently, which would mean that his DC case basically didn't matter. All of his months that he served in SDNY sentence would be also count for his DC case. And which would mean that he would go to prison for just over four years. But luckily, the judge in D.C. didn't do that. 
and made it consecutive. So now Charles McGonigal, the most corrupt FBI agent to be caught and convicted and sentenced since the late 1980s, um, maybe the highest level FBI agent to ever be sentenced. It depends and convicted and sentenced. It depends on how you look at it. Um, is going to go to prison for six and a half years, plus three to five years of probation, plus a hundred thousand dollar fine, plus he's cooperating with other investigations. So it's a big win. It's does he deserve more years in prison for what he did? Absolutely. Absolutely. But guess what? He pled guilty and got a deal. That's how these things work. He copped a plea deal in the SDNY case and the DC case. And as part of that deal, he got a lesser sentence. That's how these things work. Um, so it's a big win for us, but I was, I was, this is a story that I have paid very, very close attention to since the news first broke that McGonagall was raided by the FBI back in 2022. And I think my opinion is that the SDNY case of McGonagall's was spun off from the Durham special counsel and was delegated to the SDNY. The DC case came from his ex-mistress going to the FBI and filing a report about how much extra cash this guy had on him and his associations. Um, we haven't learned heard the last of McGonagall. I don't think they're done with him. I think that there might even be another case coming against McGonagall that's part of something bigger. Um, I also think we're going to see McGonagall uh, in the news a lot more as relates to other criminality he engaged in. Um, so it's a big win, and I'm really happy about it. And I don't want to, as I go through this topic, I don't want to sound like I'm not happy about it. But something I noticed um, this past week as I was looking at this news, um, and something I've noticed over the time period since McGonagall became a news story these past two years, is that the same media outlets who constantly tell us that the DOJ is hopelessly corrupt and the FBI, nothing good ever comes out of the FBI and uh, the justice system is broken. Um, the same outlets and influencers who constantly tell us that ignored the greatest example of that system working, of that system being exposed, the greatest example of an FBI agent being just as corrupt as what those outlets and influencers say the FBI is, they ignore this story. And it, to me, it demonstrates the dishonesty that's inherent with a lot of these influencers and outlets where you would think that if you were an influencer or an outlet who was constantly telling your audience that DOJ is corrupt, nothing good comes from them. FBI corrupt, nothing good comes from them. The justice system is hopelessly broken. Nothing ever happens. Nobody has ever punished. They all get away with it. The swamp is never being drained. Justice never happens. You would think they would seize on the McGonagall story and say, see, I was right about the FBI. Look how corrupt this guy is. But they ignore it. And then you would think that they would seize on the story and say, look, there's finally one example of justice working, but they ignore it. And I, and I think that demonstrates a a dishonesty with those outlets and those people, one. Two, it caused me to think about something that I don't really like, but 
and I, and I'm still I'm still chewing on it. Um, I'm still chewing on this thought. I may be wrong, but I think I'm more correct than I am incorrect with it. And that and that that thought is that as justice arrives, depending on which silo, which matrix of falsehoods people exist in, they may not even recognize justice when it arrives. And I, I was telling Bibi before the show as we were discussing this topic that you look look back over the past five years at some of the justice that we've seen happen um, or the even the attempts at justice and look at how it got blackpilled so effectively that people don't even recognize it. So like Epstein being indicted and arrested and then his associates being indicted and arrested, such as Jean-Luc Brunel and a bunch of others. People black pill over Epstein and those other guys, and they don't recognize that he was actually arrested and was facing an extensive prosecution and, and, and sentence. And we know about the killed himself, didn't kill himself thing, but that was a huge win and it got covered up with black pilling. And then huge Q proof as Wild Boar says. Huge Q, as well. yeah, huge Q proof also. And then Maxwell after him. Yep. Ghislaine Maxwell was sentenced to 20 plus years in a trial that was very difficult circumstances because a lot of the witnesses against her didn't want to testify. And with the evidence they were able to get in, they managed to get her convicted and get a 20 plus year sentence for her. And um, the influencers were so effective at blackpilling over Maxwell that people doomed out over her being sentenced to prison for decades. Yeah. Um, and then there was FTX. FTX scandal broke. And within two weeks, three weeks or so, FTX was not only arrested, all of the Alameda executives and FTX executives were either arrested um, or brought in. They all ended up eventually being arrested and indicted. And they all flipped against Samuel Bankman Freed, who's now been sentenced to prison for over 50 years. But the blackpilling against that entire thing is so effective, people don't even recognize that not only did not only did the justice system work, the justice system worked, DOJ worked quickly, the justice system wheels suddenly sped up and worked really quickly. A, a, a hundred plus million dollar money laundering operation that funded Democrats was immediate and, and rhinos was immediately dismantled. Um, and then with McGonagall, I already went into what that is. So it started made me think that, um, you know, depending on where you're at and what your matrix is and what silo you're in and how many black pills you're consuming, you may not recognize the, the, the the justice as it's delivered. And I don't really have like this end point on that thought. And I don't know if maybe that's, um, and I'm starting to think that's the way it's supposed to be. Like, I, I'm really starting to think, you know what, actually that might be the way it has to be. And the way it's just going to be is that if you want to know, you know, if you want to find out and follow the swamp draining, you can. Um, the choice to know will be yours. You could say that's exactly what I'm thinking. And I do, I do think that people have to believe to a certain degree that there, uh, there has to be this narrative shielding around the DOJ. 
Um, I do think it's necessary and I do think it's advantageous in a lot of respects. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of like, I'm chewing on this thought and realizing that, um, yeah, the choice to know will be yours and that there's really nothing we can do about that. And I don't mean, I don't mean that to be kind of like a, a negative take, but I think that it's very much just to, and each to each his own thing. I also think there's an aspect of it where, um, I think there's a, there's a certain segment of influencers and outlets who are giving people a false reality or actually a false definition of what justice is. And so that if it arrives, they won't recognize it because they've been told that it was something else. So for example, um, with McGonagall, people constantly will comment on stuff I post about him. Uh, treason. He needs to hang. He needs to go to Gitmo. It's treason. When nothing McGonagall did, it actually fits the definition of treason. One. Two, he didn't break the military. He's not in the military. He's not under the military code of justice. So there's no there's no way he's going to... Gitmo. Uh, so it's kind of like that, uh, what Wichter used to say is nobody knows how anything works. And it reminds me about that, but I think there's such a, there's such a push to convince people that justice is this niche extreme definition. And then when people don't get that, they cry foul when actually it was justice was delivered to the maximum extent possible. Uh, so like in the McGonagall case, um, just for example, according to the sentencing guidelines after he reached the plea deal, the maximum he could have gotten in the DC case is 30 months. He got 28. Um, so you're saying it was a catastrophic defeat. So it's yeah. So like, are we really, like, really going to complain about that? Oh, I, Two, I, I 60 think, days? I, I think this is a great topic. And I think, um, you know, this is something that I've referred to as the process paradigm kind of in different contexts. Last week, actually, we sort of had a version of this discussion about um, the hand-wringing. You know, I'd said that there'd, there'd been a lot of strange, confusing to me, hand-wringing in the truth community about the prospect of the deep state trying to replace Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, we had said on that show, well, hold on. If the truth community, the MAGA community has been talking about how Joe Biden is the worst ever and needs to be exposed for being the worst president ever and proxy president and all this kind of stuff and the theories of Obama in the basement. And if we've all been alleging these kinds of things and forwarding these kind of theories, well, the establishment mirroring those theories and going public with them in 2024 is somehow being spun as a loss when I'd said by camera, Lee, it's a win either way you slice it. Either it shows that they are going to be successful at removing Joe Biden, which reveals that everyone in this community was right. And more of the collective mind is then going to be aware that they were sold a false bill of goods in Joe Biden. And that would be a good thing narratively and psychologically, or the establishment is not going to be able to replace Joe Biden, which will map onto what you and I and John often talk about of uh, one of the biggest Devo proofs going would be Joe Biden being Trump's proxy president and being unable to be replaced by the establishment. And I think what you bring up about McGonagall, I know McGonagall is a small example of these wins that are happening that, uh, but 
you know, we had said MAGA needs to learn, the truth community needs to learn to take the win more. Now, that doesn't mean, I don't think that what you're saying even has any black-pilled tinges to it. I think actually what you're expo what you're sort of surfacing is that the fact that people could read what you just said as negative is itself a sign of a warped frame of mind that a lot of us have been programmed into, not always just by the deep state, but I I, dis I discussed this last week sort of in the context of the battered, the battered stepchild sort of thing. You know, when you go through an awakening process that everybody watching the show, you're here because you've had your own path, whatever that looked like, into the awakening process. But really, as silly as this sounds, in order to awaken, you have to discover or realize that you have been asleep. You can't awaken without understanding that. You can't have a conscious awareness in awakening without knowing you've been asleep. And inherent in the process of, of learning that you have been asleep, you have to understand, it, it, it brings with it an understanding that you have been lied to. You've been sold over and over a false bill of goods. Chris Paul refers to the entirety of the system of systems as the false reality. And the most painful part of that awakening process is not just being confronted with the truth, it's being confronted with the idea and sort of the shame, I think, that you've bought into all of these lies for so long. And I think what can happen is that we all awaken in this, in this understanding and with this confrontation with this matrix of falsehoods that we've been sold, and we carry this, this sort of uh, suspicion this well-founded suspicion of everything we're being told from then on. We have been, we're so used to being lied to that when anything sort of unequivocally good happens, we sort of look for the other shoe to drop. We've been battered right. into, this, into this belief that surely we didn't just actually get a win here. Surely there's another shoe to drop because for so long in our experience, there has been, right? We win in 2016. We win the 2016 election with Donald Trump and we're like, MAGA won, everything's going well. And then boom, the full power of the deep state system of systems is weaponized against Trump and this entire movement. And then we get rug pulled in 2020 and we lose that election, quote unquote, right? It feels like getting kicked in the balls, for lack of a better term, after a big win. So... I don't think it's all about people misrepresenting stories. I think there are people who mis misrepresent and cover up these wins, to your point, and they kind of monetize the hate clicks and the doom clicks. But yeah. I will say that there's a, there, is, there are a lot of people who earnestly doom out because they've been, they've been built up with hope so, so long and they've been built up with hope before and then they've been rug pulled so many times. And I think that this process of quote unquote taking the win or recognizing the wins as you often preach and as we try to sort of preach on this show, it doesn't mean that we are satisfied with where things are at. And I think that's what we should communicate better. It's not about, you know what, just be satisfied with the wins we're getting. Don't don't look for anything more. We're not satisfied with the wins we've gotten, but yeah. we need to learn to recognize them and codify them because it's only by accepting these wins and recognizing them, as you point out, that we maintain, I think, the logic-based hope to keep going and keep in the information fight. If we never think we're getting any wins, 
then that's how people doom out of the info war completely. And that's exactly what the establishment wants out of us. So mapping the yeah. wins isn't about being satisfied that we have won. It's about recognizing that we can win and we're in the process of winning, even if there's also losses along the way. Yeah, well, you explained, um, you elucidated where my real concern here is um, and, and why I have the tone about this that I do, that um, I don't want people dooming out. Right. I don't want I don't want people giving up. I'm I, I, I want to white pill as much as possible. Um, and, and I and I it concerns me that uh, people are missing these wins and not recognizing it. And I'm having to I'm ha I'm I, again, I'm chewing on this. I'm chewing on this this path or, or I'm walking this path and chewing on these thoughts. Um, and I think you're I think you're right that sometimes and I'm guilty of it. I, I try to, uh, white pill and it comes across as I'm telling someone to be satisfied. Yeah. And I'm not really telling them to be satisfied. I'm telling them, Hey, you know, take heart of this right here and recognize this good thing and use it as motivation to continue. Continue not, forward. Yeah. The yeah. Fight's not, not over. Take this and shut up like, or right. like, you know, like, take the win and then go watch sports and forget about the info war. It's to me, it's more like take this win and be happy about it. Like I I'm really happy about McGonagall. I'm, I did not expect him to get this many years. I expected yeah. it to be concurrent, not consecutive. So I'm really excited about McGonagall. And, um, I think, I think there's going to be a lot more good news that comes out of this case and good developments that come out of it. So I'm, I have a lot of anticipation along yeah. with this white pill. Um, but I, I'm also kind of, I'm recognizing just like, this is like this broad thing that I'm, I'm entertaining now after watching the swamp draining for this many years and noting where justice is happening and how it's happening. It's, it, it comes with very little advertisement. It comes right. with very little fanfare. It doesn't get a lot of attention and it usually is slow and it's under the radar. And you have to go out and look for it, and it and it and it's it occurs amongst a massive volume of counter information that tells you it's not hap Not only is it not happening, it's impossible and will never happen, and it's right. all demoralizing. Um, and that stuff bothers me because I have this concern for the community and concern for people giving up. I don't want them to to check out. Um, so yeah, I'm just chewing on this thought, and I think you make a good point that it is on us to white pill in a way that that prompts people to continue, not prompts them to just rest in some right. sort of satisfaction. You yeah, got what I you wanted. People... Just it's enough. You know, you yeah. know, just like you know, one problem I have with the doomers is that one of the ways they black pill is by saying it's not good enough. Right. I don't want to do the opposite of that and white pill and say it is good enough. This is good enough. Exactly. You don't want to be two sides of the extreme and sometimes people can conflate yeah. and I understand it. They can they can yeah. think that that's what you're doing or that that's what we're doing. Um, when, when we're definitely not saying to rest on your laurels. Um, you know, uh, many people in this community are aware of the Reagan quote. Um, you know, blood uh, freedom isn't passed through the bloodstream. It doesn't it doesn't just you know, I'm, I'm butchering it, of course, but everybody knows this. It, it has to be fought for or the age old quote of of giving you a republic if you can keep it right. And, and a yeah. lot of us 
uh, those are mantras that are worth keeping in mind. Those are not doomy takes. Those are not Reagan. Those aren't the founding fathers saying, doom out, you're going to have to fight forever. It's going to suck. It, it's them trying to motivate while saying, listen, you've got something really great here. You've got something good. That's a good thing. But you have to have a mindset that you're going to have to keep fighting for it. And what, what I think you do a good job of cutting through is recognizing those wins. You know, the way I would think of it is kind of like a battlefield commander. It is, you can recognize that not every army that thinks they're going to win a war wins the war. There's been many armies that think they're going to win a war and they lose, right? But I can promise that every army who thinks they're going to lose does lose. Does lose. Yes. So, and, and I was going to make a little combat sports analogy since you, you teed me up for it. Um, you know, I used to, I used to kickbox and I, I spent, I've spent a good part of my career covering combat sports, being around combat sports. So that's just what I'm kind of geared to observe. And combat sports is really interesting because it's individual, but the relationship between a fighter and a good coach or corner team is an incredible bond of trust that has to happen there. And I'll give him credit, even though he takes criticism. I think Joe Rogan does a good job sometimes of distilling why some people will be watching a fight and maybe the round one goes horribly for fighter B, you know, blue corner. He's all bloody. He's beaten up. His techniques aren't really working. The game plan's not going well. And he sits down in the corner between rounds and his coaches will either kind of chew him out. And some people watching will be going, why are they chewing this guy out? I mean, he's he's already taken enough damage. Or sometimes the coaches will white pill and they'll say, listen, you did a really good job. Your jab is working. Your distance is working. Your movement is working. And some people on the couch will say, man, he lost the first round. You've really got to you've got to tell him that he lost that round. And what Rogan does a good job of pointing out is that that coach knows that fighter. He knows that fighter's mentality better yes. than anybody else does. Right. And there are some fighters that if they believe that they can't, that they do not have a path to victory. If they believe that the first round was catastrophic, you know, your, your view of how a round went in a fight never matches what everybody objectively watching it looks like. You're in such a fight or flight mode that you basically, it's like a dream. So, or a nightmare if it's not going well. And for some people, they need their coach to say, your jab is good. This is what you got to do in round two. And for other fighters, they actually need that kick in the ass. They need the coach to tell them, listen, you got to get on your horse. You got to go after this guy. This isn't working. This isn't what we talked about. And it's really incumbent on the relationship that that athlete has with that coach, where they know that whatever that coach is instilling in that fighter is what that fighter needs to hear. And all of that is to say that sometimes it's just something that we have to recognize, just like there's many paths to the mountaintop, the style of communication that we do on this show, it just isn't going to work for some people, right? Some people like that, that's not the pathway that they're going to take. Other people, it's really encouraging for them and they need it and it sustains them and they want to focus on those little wins. And, uh, you know, I, I just think it's important to distill the intention there. And I don't criticize corner work anymore when I'm watching fights unless I think that the, the advice being given is, is actively detrimental to the fighter. Sometimes there will be a fighter that looks like they think they're winning and they're not. And the coach will be reinforcing 
this false reality into the fighter's mind that you're winning, you can coast to the decision, everything's going well, and you're sitting on the couch going, this is not true. That is not what you should be telling this guy, right? So it is a balance. And I think the InfoWars is the same. And I would say, you know, to, to stretch this analogy a little further, I think you could look at Donald Trump and Patriots. They are the corner man. They are the corner men. And we collectively are the fighter. And I think that one of their big challenges and struggles is that they are trying to find that balance of motivating MAGA and the America First movement to keep in the fight and keep moving forward and do what got you to the dance while also trying to tell them like you things are going well but don't rest on your laurels but you've got to try harder but it's okay it's going okay you know it's a tough balance for them to strike and i think it's why sometimes if we can admit to ourselves donald trump's own narrative deployments can be a little bit schizophrenic you know one day he's in all caps screaming about the department of justice and the next night he does an Iowa rally and talks about how everything's going well and Agenda 47 is on the way. You know, he's yeah. he knows what he's doing. It's just that he's talking to different kinds of fighters. People in the audience are different sorts of fighters and they're motivated through, through different things, which is ultimately why it's up to you. What motivates you? What voices motivate you? What voices doom you out? And I think Kyle's one of the best at pointing this out. And I would just say you really need to pay active mind to who you are listening to and whatever we think of who you're listening to if listening to certain sources makes you feel overwhelmingly negative and demotivated when you listen to them it's probably a sign that you need to find other sources and because it's not helping you agree and i i love that analogy i think that's great um yeah I think you nailed it, BB. So and I also Nick. feel, and I also, <laughs> I also, I also feel a little bit better uh, about this where I'm thinking on this because it is personal to me. Yeah, uh, it's definitely personal. Well, to you me, take so it seriously because you don't like seeing it, people doom out, so it can feel personal when you see people doing yeah. dooming out. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It's personal. It's personal to me in that sense, and that I, I really care about the community, and I want to lift people up and encourage and get them to see these wins. But it's also personal to me because it's like uniquely in my wheelhouse, something I care a great deal about. Right. And that and that took me out of my own black pill. Right. Because my own my own black pills were undone. My own black pill uh, coma was undone by finding out swamp draining was happening. Mm-hmm. And so I want to share that the same way I want to share music that I love with other people and show them how awesome that music is. And I want them to like it, too. Um, yeah. But. I also recognize not everybody likes the same music or appreciates the same things about music that I appreciate. And in the info war, it's kind of like that where certain people things about it, different coaching. people respond differently to different types of coaching in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think your analogy works not really, really the, well. Not that we're the arbiters. We're not saying any of that. I know some people get nope, upset sometimes not that. with that. And, uh, and that can even be tricky, right? Cause you're on it. You're on a show, right? And we're lucky to have this 14,000 people here hit the like, by the way. If you, if you believe in having a positive attitude. Um, but, you know, that that can be the imposter syndrome, right? Can creep in where it's like, yeah. well, who are we to arbit, to be the arbiters of the info world? Well, we're not. We're just trying to <laughs> say what we think is going on. And some people find yeah. that really useful, which is humbling and, um, and encouraging for us. It's sort of like when the fighter takes the advice, 
you know, when you feel like you're following what Trump wants you to do in this whole movement, you feel good. It's motivating. It's a feedback loop. And then they're motivated by that. They're motivated by seeing us um, in this community kind of working and, and pushing things forward and trying to not doom out. Because I guarantee you that Trump and patriots, even when they're screaming in all caps about the DOJ and the witch hunt and Biden's the worst and everything's bad right now, they don't want people dooming out. And I think it is a tightrope that they have to walk. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely agree with that. All right, let's do uh, balance boost and rants. All right, guys, and, and for real, hit that thumbs up because um, that gets us up the leaderboard. It helps us trend the next day. You can get some. You can be a part of getting the signal through the noise. So we appreciate that. Ooh, some, is that some Benson honey? Crinkling? We caught the crinkling dude, there. Thought you were gonna... Dude, I have I have a brand new jar of Benson's honey Ooh, right here. That's nice. You know it's new when it's, it's all moving around like that with that amber. Yes. Yes. Uh, all right, we got some rants. We got Seahawk Mom 1987 says, looking forward to tonight's show, but a huge shout out to Kyle for opening the door to sous vide. Did a tri-tip mm. that was to die for and BB, amazing job on your Righteous Russia series, Phenom. Thank you very much. Yes. You are welcome. Sous vide <laughs> will change your life. If you love to cook like I do, everybody must have a sous vide setup. You must. I got to try it. I haven't tried Got it yet. Got to, dude. But uh, I will I will give a shout out to Tri-Tip because I had never heard of that cut of meat until uh, a couple years ago. I bought one, grilled one up on the steak, like the Brazilian cut. Oof. Charcoal, flame-broiled Tri-Tip. That's some good stuff. Tom Terrific 54 sends 25 over, says this is still my most favoritest show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom Terrific. Uh, Brianne Murphy sends 50 bucks over and says 20 smackers is worth it to get burning bright to stop pronouncing my name as Brianne Murphy and correctly say it Brianne Murphy lol no I'm just kidding it's Brian E Murphy uh, <laughs> Brian E Murphy lol and another $30 to say Kyle you rule defected forever <laughs> thank, thank you. you for correcting that um, I do have a thing from my mom where once she has something locked the wrong way of saying it incorrectly, when I come across it, I'll be like, I know that I usually say this incorrectly, so I'm gonna say it the other way, and then it's usually the wrong way. So, but for you, I'm just gonna do it to continue to bug you. I, I, I never, I don't know anything about this topic. I, I'm always pronoun pronouncing things correctly. And um, uh, yeah, and I always put the emphasis on the correct syllable. Right. And, um, yeah, get my J words yeah, my wife, my every time. Mrs. Bright has a very strange uh, thing she does where she puts the wrong emphasis on the wrong word and uh, she just passes it off as it being a Canadian thing when it is not. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny. Texas Grandma 57 says, what is y'all's take on trucker boycott of New York because of bad decision by Judge Obi-Wan? Or whatever his name is. Thanks. <laughs> I, I only read a little bit about that trucker boycott. I mean, hey, if it's peaceful and effective, then go for it. Um, Honestly, I was just in New York City. There's no way I would drive a regular car in Manhattan. I definitely wouldn't drive a truck, a big truck in Manhattan. Um, <laughs> but I don't know anything about it. I kind of think yeah. these trucker boycotts don't work that well. Uh, but I, I, I have to admit, I don't know much about it. So maybe they do work really well. Um, yep. and I've missed that. Um, 
I think truckers are some pretty smart people and they know what they're doing generally. And they're pretty and coordinated. They're, and they're pretty coordinated. And um, uh, I know that, you know, truckers live a very interesting lifestyle that, and, and, and it's necessary for our country. Um, so I don't think they make decisions to participate in such things lightly. Right. Uh, so, um, but I have to admit, I don't actually know if trucker boycotts do work or not. It, it is a peaceful form of protest that I do respect. I like that about it. Mm. Um, so, Hey, the, uh, yeah. the moves that, uh, speaking of Canada and trucker boycotts, the moves that the truckers made up there were obviously, you know, got the attention of the world and, um, and very, and very recently, a federal court in Canada ruled that Justin Trudeau's responses, COVID era responses to that trucker movement were unconstitutional. They were illegal. Yeah. Um, yeah. They had no standing. And that's a great precedent to set that t that truckers triggered. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's and people paid the consequence. Like when truckers participate in such things, they they lose out on money. Uh, yeah. They lose out on job opportunity and work. Right. And they put their obviously in Canada, they put their bank accounts at risk and all yeah. sorts of stuff, you know, so I really do respect it. Um, it seems like in Canada it was successful. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I, I kind of, my understanding of the one, my understanding of the protests with DC truckers is that it, it wasn't successful and it, it did more. It, it basically, they all suffered the consequences of it and it didn't really change anything. I could be wrong on that though. Well, and I think, I think there's a couple different things that can happen. So in DC, they were trying to occupy a region you know, right. like sort of a blockade type of thing. Whereas um, <clears throat> the New York one's interesting. What little I know about it. When you're talking about a trucker boycott, I could see that being a much more effective sort of thing because that's not actively doing something. It's yeah, basically just non not doing something, right? And the right. best form of protest that, that kicked this country off originally before things went in a different direction was uh, civil disobedience, right? It's an effective form right. of protest. It's always been one of the most effective forms. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Shelly Shelley of Texas says, hi, guys. See you at Gart in Dallas. Can't wait. Speaking of, speaking of, uh, I was going to say speaking of Texas, but I don't know if we were speaking of Texas. I was thinking of the trucker boy, well, the trucker. Hey, we'll be going to Texas. Uh, we'll be going to Texas next in April. Yeah. We're going to Texas in April. You're going to be there, right? I don't know if I will be at Gart Dallas. Okay. I've still got some things up in the air. That one's a little up in the air for me. Um, but I'm still trying to, I'm trying to get clarity on it. Okay. Uh, Desert Ram 45 says, sends 20 over, says, thanks guys for helping us defect. I wish defect, I watch defected so I can be less defective. Here's 10 bucks each for your fanny, for your fanny cash box. I gotta, I gotta <laughs> create a, a fanny cash box. Yeah. <laughs> like my daddy always showed me. And man, she did herself no favors. You know, if you're trying to look for, trying to undo some stereotypes as a federal prosecutor and you go up there and you start ranting and raving about how your daddy told you what to do with his singles. I don't know. Lucky dog 31 says, please clip this. My daughter and I have been disagreeing with her wanting to impose her views on my use of words because it offends her. I needed to hear this tonight. I think this oh, is we a need reference to uh... clip the profanity clip. Um, <laughs> and I'll think I will because people get a little upset when I do that. But, um, you know, I don't say it to reprimand people. I say it to inform them that I will not be changing the way I talk for anybody else. So like, it's okay. 
that you guys feel that some people feel the way they feel, uh, but you're not going to change people whose entire identities revolves around defecting from what other people tell them to do. <laughs> a little <laughs> ironic, right? <laughs> Jim73 says 10 bucks over says, what do you guys, what do you suppose the consequences are of telling the world you carry large amounts of cash everywhere you go? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, does anybody really believe that Fanny keeps 15 grand in her home in cash? Probably like, not. it is a good idea to keep some cash. We all know this. It actually is pretty conservative. Like that's been a normal thing for people who are minded uh, or have a mindset about survival that you, you know, you keep some extra cash, you keep some extra ammo, some food, some water. Like it's a prepper thing, mm -hmm. but some singles for the club, her trying to convince the world that she keeps tens of thousands of dollars in cash at home in a safe and that when her boyfriend buys her a trip a cruise and flights and everything else to aruba she pays him back in cash like just gives and like and then she tried to say she went to belize with like forty five hundred dollars cash on her like, don't you have to declare cash when you go? Like, when you fly with that much cash, don't you have to declare it? Like, I mean, I think it's a great example of like dress, man. I, th I think bodice. I think we saw a great example of um, how a lie, a little lie to cover up something, can explode into ten more lies that are yeah. just become more and more unbelievable as you go on. I can totally picture her and Wade having a phone call or a in person meeting and saying, "Look, we we gotta we gotta come up with something to explain this away." I'll just say I gave you cash reimbursement for these trips, and it's because my Black Panther radical socialist dad trained me in the ways of the Black Panther to always keep cash in my house. Okay. And they'll believe You're gonna me. You're going to put some side to side head nods in there too. I'm not doing that. And, uh, and, <laughs> what black and then do, she man. realizes, then she realizes, Oh, I have to explain that. I also took two grand to South Carolina for a lunch meeting into Tennessee and four grand to Belize and four grand to Aruba. And, and then, Every time I paid him cash and they're like, you didn't use Venmo or cash app like you did with these other reimbursements. No, because he doesn't have that on his phone. That's not what her daddy taught her how to do. Her dad <laughs> I don't know why you would, you know, you're trying to appropriate black culture. Why don't you just appreciate that's why though, the more unhinged it got with those little lies, the, uh, the more the identity politics came out to play. It was mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. You're not putting me on trial. I'm putting you on trial. Like how many, how many, <laughs> like would that work? Can I just do that if I get arraigned in court and I'm just like, listen, you, you may think I'm on trial, but actually you're on trial. You're on my I, trial. I will admit that her talking about it so much made me think, do I have enough cash on hand? If there's an emergency, <laughs> right. like how much cash yes. do I have on hand? Maybe I should get some more cash. Like yep. she did make me, it was effective in that sense. But at no time did I think I need to go empty my bank account and have it in stacks <laughs> in my safe. Fat stacks, yep. <laughs> Man. And then she couldn't explain where she got it. 
Like the only yeah. time she explained where she got it was when she said she took her campaign's cash, which is illegal. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, and like, and like oh, also when the, she knows as the DA that if cops raid your house for some, some reason, they go and arrest you and you have like five grand in cash on you. Um, uh, you don't get, you don't get that back. They don't just say like, oh, you had five grand on you. Like big deal. Like everybody carries around five grand. Like, no, it's like, that can be indicative of you engaging in criminal behavior that you're, unless you're going to buy a car or a right. boat or something, why do you have five grand in your pocket? <laughs> I don't know how this is like, it's funny. Like you can really picture the lying. moment. Where her and Wade were like, oh, that's a good excuse. That'll work. Yeah. And then it just snowballs into the most ridiculous, idiotic yeah. excuse. Hashtag these people are stupid. They are. Uh, not those people, though. Okay? Don't, don't let her twist it. Boom Diggity sends over 100 bucks. Much appreciated, Boom. And says, any thoughts that Fanny's dad could know Jack Smith? And any idea why former Governor Barnes was on stand? He sent over a link oh, here. Oh, yeah. I opened that link earlier. I don't... Hmm. I don't know. I've never I've never heard that, that they could know each other. Um, but... Probably pretty incestuous. I, I remember learning that her dad was, like, part of the original founding group of the Black Panthers and was a radical socialist. And I remember thinking, oh, of course he was. Like, of course, of course. Yeah. That that makes total sense. But then when he was on the stand and they were like, so did you ever uh talk to your when when your daughter moved, did the subject of her moving cash ever come up or her having lots of cash on hand come up? And his answer was just America is racist. Like, like it was like, oh, yeah, this dude is a radical, radical. This is the kind of guy that Obama like was this is the type of psychology that Obama was brought up around. Like Magneto this, in this dude's insane, insane yeah. with rate America is racist ideology. And it's so fun. It's not funny, but it's, it's somewhat it's perplexing funny. that someone who is supposedly a world traveler and has like been a, like it has been out of country yet thinks America is so racist. Like how do you how do you go to these other countries and not recognize how racist they are and then come to America and realize how not racist America is? Um, I, it's amazing. I don't Mental know. gymnastics. Um, you know, sometimes Griffs. the simplest answer is the correct one, and people lie. Liars gonna lie. Astro Emmy sends seventeen over. Says who did in Navalny? I think not Putin. Well, as Kyle said earlier, it could be that he just died and this was the timing of it and that the media then or the deep state then weaponized that narrative or used it to their advantage. But uh, hey, something whacks like an Intel op, <laughs> walks like an Intel op, quacks like an Intel op, and whacks like an Intel op. Probably is an Intel op. I mean, yeah. that's just my, my two cents there. Timing's a little suspect. Trump or Mike sent 17 over said getting hitched next week two grooms question mark and explanation point wish us well mike and tyler in humboldt california also sent over a boost and said just a special share 
Two grooms next week. My partner and I are getting married after 10 years of loving companionship. Might as well use the California Dem laws against them. Hashtag Congra- Trump 2024. <laughs> congratulations. Congrats, yeah, congratulations. And thank you. I like, yeah. I like the framing there. <laughs> use, use That's the excellent. Of, use the weapons of the enemy against them. You should, as long as you hashtag Trump 2024 on the invitations, you can just trigger them. The full Ouroborosian sort of uh, inversion there. They won't know what to do. You've got narrative shielding all the way around. <laughs> yeah, it's excellent. <laughs> R.L. Skeeter sends 50 bucks over. Says, what's your opinion regarding the file that Putin gave to Tucker? Could it have the evidence regarding Russiagate real info? I think it was just, he, he was he was he was claiming in the interview that that was context of the figure's that Putin was talking about. One of the funniest things of that interview was when he was educating the American public on GDP numbers coming out of the U.S. that the American public is unaware of. <laughs> so he was kind of saying, yeah. like, all this stuff's in this file. Um, yeah, and wasn't he? He was referencing letters uh, from correspondence. someone. Yeah, uh, he was also referencing that... maybe Ukraine with uh, peace dealings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's what it was in reference to. You know, basically that we've got it in writing right here. That the uh, ambassador, you know, you, you, Zelensky had sent a delegation and they had agreed to our terms before Boris Johnson had intervened. Yeah, I um, I kind of think what's in it is exactly what, what Putin said was in it. But I do like thinking that somewhere in there is Tucker's application to the CIA. Um, I just really like that. It probably isn't in there. I don't I don't like to read anything into these sorts of like into yeah. these sorts of things. I don't like to read too much into it unless there's a reason to. Um, I do think Putin might be the type of character who would include some extra things in there uh, for fun. Um, or he may just have uh, done that off camera. Yeah. Um, so I think Putin is kind of a character. Like yeah. when you watch his behavior with Trump, he's got, a, he's behavior- got an interesting sense of humor. And his behavior with MS, MSB and like, uh, yeah, you know, I just, I think that he's a bit MBS. I mean, um, yeah. I think he's, a, a he has a, he has a side to him that our mm-hmm. media doesn't show. Um, the fact that he smirked when informing Tucker of Tucker's interest in the CIA means he knew exactly what he was doing and exactly yeah. how it would be taken. So I liked that. Um, one of my favorite little clips of Vladimir Putin ever was, I believe it was a Kazakhstani delegation was having a photo op with him and they presented him with a puppy that I was, uh, Oh yes. Yes. I think it was a Kangal, which is like mm-hmm. a, a Turkish shepherd. Basically they're like incredible dogs. They, they, they fight bears and wolves and all kinds of stuff. So he had presented Putin with this Kangal puppy and the guy, the Kazakhstani is uh, or or maybe it was Turkey. Is is holding the holding the puppy up like by the scruff for the photo op, and Putin is is sort of tense in his chair, and then stands up and like takes the puppy and kind of cradles it while posing yes. with the with the delegate for the photo op. And like from that moment, I was like, you know, sometimes you can just tell somebody's a good guy, and he's yeah. sitting there being like, man, you can't hold puppies that way. <laughs> like you gotta yes. <laughs> you, you gotta hold this puppy differently. And uh, it reminded me of like when somebody's trying to hold a baby that doesn't know how and every woman in the room is just like, you got to give that to me. <laughs> You're not doing yes, this correctly. Yes. By the way, I'm that guy who doesn't know how to hold them. Uh, I know how to hold puppies. 
but yeah, it's a great, it's a great clip of Putin that really humanizes him. It's like that guy likes dogs. He, he wants you to hold them right. <laughs> uh, Tr- Terry Christensen says, says 13,000 watching 1000 likes. If you can't afford a $5 rant, simply smash the like button for free. Well said, Terry. Turkmenistan. Oh my god, he's just holding this. Oh my goodness. He's, he's like, uh, let me get, let me have it, let me have it. Yeah, he's like, you're, there you go. Look at this guy. Smooths out his scruff there. Kissed him. Kissed the puppy. <laughs> I love that clip. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if he still has that dog. That'd be funny to get an update. Uh, I think Putin would love my dog. My Russian dog. Freight Awakening, known extremist, says, Good discussion, gents. Let's not ignore the elephant penis in the room. Mohap. Could have been what was in Putin's folder. Then he, he, he then said, I'm guessing, he said, off topic, BB, I'm guessing you've watched the UFC for a while. How do you think Tank Abbott would fare against these new MMA fighters? I love that guy. Local HB Street Fighter, lack stamina. Um, he would be absolutely annihilated very easily, very quickly. Um, he was fighting back when it was a strongman competition. And contrary to yeah. sort of the legend of Tank Abbott, he had a losing record at the time in the early 90s. <laughs> he was smoked by most of the UFC caliber fighters he fought even in that era. So um, he would be absolutely destroyed uh, by There's... everyone. I think I think uh, MMA. Well, no, it definitely has. MMA has evolved in the UFC, and I'm no expert, of course, but it seems to me that that MMA has evolved over these generations to where the highest caliber fighters we see right now are the highest caliber ever. Right. And the same thing has happened in Formula One, where there con- people will constantly try and compare today's drivers to drivers from 25, 50 years ago, who are have a let they're legendary now and there's no comparison because the right. equipment was completely different the training was completely different like michael schumacher when he came in in 94 and won his first championship in 94 he started driving in 92 in f1 i think it was um people constantly compare to him formula one was still a rich man's club and Michael Schumacher was the first driver to come in who had like a a trainer who like yeah. went out and did like triathlons and was like physically fit and like prepped himself for the physic physical challenge of driving a car. So he instantly was better than other people because he had the physical endurance to drive the car better. And like right. everybody had to raise their game to match him in the late nineties, everybody had to suddenly figure out, well, what is the right physique for a driver? Like what exercises do you do to be a better driver? And then that just like escalated and escalated and escalated. And then like diet came in. Yeah. And it's just, it's just literally an arms race. And, um, the same thing has happened in MMA, I'm sure. Right. Where it's like, George St. Pierre to that, to that note, George St. Pierre was innovative for mixing martial arts together into mixed martial arts. So right. he would, you know, right. he wasn't the only guy that did it, but he was the first one that took it very seriously. And he he sort of believed in the style of no style. You know, it was like a lot of guys were they were the striker, they were a grappler, 
Um, but mm -hmm. MMA is interesting. It's a little cyclical where you have this era of the mixed martial artist, and then you'll have the era of the specialist. And everyone thought the specialist era was over, but it's kind of coming back. This weekend, you had uh, one of the big reasons that the champion lost, who is very good at everything, is the fact that he was fighting a guy who was a specialist in striking, but who knows how to stop takedowns. So he forced the champion to strike with him. And if you are a 10 out of 10 in one discipline, you can still, you know, enforce that. You could, if you can force the right. other guy to play your game. Uh, by the way, guys, is this the first time Mrs. Bright has been up at this hour? What's going on there? Some kind of op. Get to bed. God. <laughs> she works one of those normal jobs where she has tomorrow off. So she's running amok. Uh, Baloo1 is now a monthly supporter to Badlands, so we appreciate that. KB Lightkeeper sends 17 over, says there is a tendency that is common among some people. When they can, they wish to live and prosper at the expense of others. Man can live and satisfy his wants only by ceaseless labor. Looks like you meant to continue this. What is this a quote from? It appears to be a quote. I'm not aware of uh, I'm not aware of this quote. The Law by Frederick Bastiat, maybe. Oh, I know Bastiat. Anyway, yeah. Thank you for the support. Wolf and I are inbred. Mrs. Bright is in bed with Wolf. Yeah, the Wolf is lurking outside of my office, trying to get me out of here. The real Magamama sends ten over. Says I think at this point our job is to take all the great info we get from y'all and spread it. Share the small win. Share, share, share. Because maybe I will share with someone that blackpilled in 2020. Right. That's true. Yeah, never, never, uh, again, as long as you don't, that's why we get annoyed when people try to keep that information, keep it to their paying subscribers. RL Skeeter, 20 bucks, says, that's why we love the reading of the documents and updates. It lifts my spirits and gives me a sense of calmness. Bless you. Bless you too, RL Skeeter. He is a I documents enjoyed... extremist. <clears throat> I am a documents extremist. I am loving reading the her report. We'll do do some more installments of that next week, but I got to take a break from it and catch up on Seth Rich case and a few other cases. So uh, at some point I'll interrupt my, my reading of the her report to do that. Um, yeah, but thank you. And I am thankful that uh, people appreciate the documents like I do. Well, John certainly does. So you have that in common. Uh, all right, that's all the rants we got. That's all the boosts we got. Thank you guys very much for your support. And again, I know we say it all the time. I know everybody says it, but it really helps us a ton if you hit the thumbs up button. Whether it's today, yes. if you're watching on replay, it helps. It helps get the show discovered by more people, kind of boost it up on that um, the Rumble trending feature, gets Rumble to take more notice of the whole network. So uh, we really appreciate when you guys do that. And I've been told that for even for people that watch on um, Roku and you know Apple TV and everything, those streaming apps, I think there's now a way for you to do it even on there. Um, but you know, much appreciated <laughs> for everybody that does that. I have to answer a question in chat. It's up. Salt it's Muncher, related, isn't it? Salt Muncher says, "Can we get a full breakdown of whether F1 drivers would do better at MMA, or if <laughs> MMA fighters would do better in F1?" Just trying to get us to four hours. <laughs> um, okay. I can, I can tell you that 100% for sure 
F1 drivers would do better at MMA yeah, than MMA fighters would do in F1 because one F F1 drivers are extremely talented athletes on their own. So any athlete that is at their level, you can start taking them into the ring and teaching them mm -hmm. uh, some MMA. And I know a few drivers do. They do have yeah. some. They do have some experience in mixed martial arts or some martial arts. So like the transition from being just an athlete that's of a high caliber to MMA, it seems to me would be a much easier transition to make and you would, you would perform better instantly than you take somebody who's an athlete and you put them into a formula one car and try like, just take like, it's a totally different thing. It's not completely even completely different. Yeah. Um, it's alien. Yeah. And plus all the controls they would have to have like, um, you, in fact, I know this is true because you can take other racing drivers who are in other racing disciplines and put them in a Formula One car and they perform terribly because, because it's such a, it's so, it's so different. Formula One, like the thing that makes it so different is that Formula One cars are easier to drive when you're going 150 miles an hour than when you're going 50 because the faster they go, the more downforce they have. Therefore, the better they stick to the road, and then it makes them easier to drive. But everything about your brain is telling you to slow down. Your brain is telling you don't take that turn that fast. You can't because every other vehicle you've ever driven would fly off the road and crash if you took that corner that fast. But a Formula One car needs you to drive it that fast or else it will fly off the road because if it's not going fast enough, it doesn't have the downforce to keep it on the road. So it's like this counterintuitive thing that you have to make your brain overcome. And people always get it wrong at first. That's why you'll see like people trying out Formula One cars and uh, they'll they'll go to take a turn and they'll go way wide on it. And they'll like yeah. just almost go off the road or slightly go off the road. And they have to build up the confidence to keep their foot in and and keep going fast and like your brain will be screaming at you you can't do this you're going to crash uh the formula one drivers overcome that they have they have to switch their mind off of that yeah the other thing that that um they encounter is uh the g-forces in a formula one car okay when an f1 car breaks they can break so fast from from 200 kilometers an hour that the water in your eyes will come off of your eyes and hit the inside of your helmet. That's how, that's how, that's how severe the G's are when braking. Like people leave this out of cars cause they think about cars are fast because they can actually go fast. Like you make the lap time on going fast, but that's not true. You can make up a huge amount of, of lap time by, um, by having excellent braking. So th because that allows you to carry way more speed into the corner. And so F1 cars, when they break, they experience over five G's in braking. Like just from the braking, you're like, your body is lurching forward and the, the moisture, the tears, the everything on your face, like the sweat will go to the inside of your helmet and drivers like, uh, you'll see it sometimes in a race 
on a hard braking circuit, if it's really, really hard, then they're sweating a lot. Like not really Singapore, but Monza, if it's a really hot Monza, a couple other tracks, you'll see the drivers when they get a chance, they'll, they'll lift up their helmet and they'll wipe it with their glove on the inside. They're wipe like in a pit stop, they're wiping away the moisture on the inside that's come off their face during the braking. So on November 12th, 1993, <laughs> UFC won. <laughs> no, I can, I can actually subvert the expectations and agree while also saying that there is not an F1 driver. It is true that an F1 driver would have a better chance in MMA than an MMA fighter would have an F1, while also saying that there is not an F1 driver alive that could beat the worst UFC fighter of the last Agreed. 10 years in a Agreed. fight. Both of those things Agreed. are true, right? So the chances basically go from zero to 0.00001% than yes. yes. an F1 fighter. You know, The only thing that they would have is that if you are two human beings locked into physical combat, it is always possible that your punch lands and knocks out even a professional fighter. It is possible. Where it's not yeah. possible for a fighter to just know how to operate an F1 vehicle and win in that yeah. sort of exchange. Um, but it is something that we, we as fighter, I wasn't a UFC fighter, but I did train for a long time and fought for a long time. Um, something that goes up the collective ass of all fighters is that every man in the world is predisposed toward a thought process that they are capable in hand-to-hand -hand combat situations. So pretty much every guy in the world thinks that like, well, maybe I wouldn't beat a professional fighter, but like I could do pretty good. And um, that is not the case. <laughs> yeah. is, if you see, uh, there, there's some footage you can see of, you know, like professional athletes, huge dudes trying to get in there with like a 140 pound kickboxer and they get kicked in the shin once and fall down crying because it's just not the same thing. And I'm sure you just can't repeat that experiment with F1 because you yeah. put somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and they're going to um, incinerate themselves in, a, in an inferno if they mess up. But yeah, specialists are specialists for a reason in all different walks of life. Like not, nobody could just do a podcast like this. Like you guys try to do a podcast, you try to get on camera and start babbling about stuff, you, you go off the rails quick. You just combust into a ball of fire and uh you know become a meme in all the worst ways so just don't ever try this don't ever try to do what we do we're very professional super pro as kyle calls it very very super pro <laughs> uh formula one testing is next weekend so uh oh, i don't know i may have i may have to cancel defective i probably won't i'll <laughs> check i'll check the times on it but formula one season spinning up testing begins i think it's thursday uh, with new cars. The great thing about Mrs. Bright being awake at this hour is hood ratting is on the menu and I can be as loud as I want in the kitchen. Me and the boys send the wolf down. We're about to hood rat. We're about to find some snacks and we're not even, gonna, we're, we're not even going to try to suppress our crinkling. It's good stuff. It's a good night. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Sir. I think that's it. <laughs> I think that's it. All right. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, and uh, hit that thumbs up. Appreciate y'all. Uh, remember, everybody's trying to program you. Don't let them. Program yourself. Stay positive. We'll see you next Sunday. 
Thank you so much for joining us and don't forget to hit the thumbs up on this video. And a special thank you to all of our advertising partners. Please remember to shift your dollars to support those businesses that support Badlands Media.